capitalism and immigration one ours is not the first generation to encounter migration on a vast scale. 200 million people too representing 3% of the global population, work outside their countries double the number of migrants 25 years ago. This new wave of migration, for which there are several reasons to which we shall turn later on, especially that portion coming mainly from the poor countries, inhabited principally by people of dark skin, to rich countries, who principally happen to be inhabited by people of lighter skin, has generated a torrent of anti-immigrant sentiment in the USA to a certain extent, but particularly across the countries of Western Europe. There is concern of hysteric proportions over asylum seekers in Britain, foreign workers in Germany, immigrants in general in Austria, etc. The new arrivals are popularly portrayed as welfare scroungers, job snatchers, criminals, drug traffickers and, increasingly, terrorists who present a danger to European culture and stability. Anti-immigrant sentiment, expressed covertly by the mainstream bourgeois parties, is overtly espoused by Jean-Marie Le Pen's National Front in France, Amber Two Bossi's Northern League in Italy, Jorg Haider's Freedom Party in Austria, the late Pim Fortuyen's Fortuyen List in the Netherlands, Philippe de Winter's Vlaams Bloc in Belgium, Pierre Kiersgaard's People's 7 CPGBML Party in Denmark. Carl Hazen's Progress Party in Norway and Nick Griffin's British National Party in Britain to name but a few. Listening to the leaders of the bourgeois racist parties of the respectable and not-so-respectable variety, ordinary workers might be forgiven for gaining the perception of immigration being a new, and dangerous, phenomenon. It is worth reminding them that immigration, the racist myths to the contrary notwithstanding, is not a novel phenomenon, which only began with the arrival of foreign workers in Western Europe in the aftermath of the Second World War from the erstwhile colonies and other poor countries in the case of Britain from the Caribbean and the Indian subcontinent. To assert that somehow foreign workers would undermine national culture, stability and racial homogeneity is to make the bold and absurd claim that the countries of Europe developed in idyllic and splendid isolation from the rest of the world a claim devoid of all foundation. In the case of Britain, there were waves of immigrants between the Roman occupation and the Norman conquest in 1066, let alone in the centuries following the movements of population that make nonsense of the very concept of British racial exclusivity. Indeed, this has now been backed up by DNA evidence, which has revealed that even those who in Britain really can claim descent from the Cheddar Gorge Man are also likely to have distant and not-so-distant ancestors who came from the Middle East, Southern and Eastern Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, etc. Capitalism and migration all the same, systemic large-scale migration is unique to capitalism. Developing capitalism obliges workers, through physical or economic compulsion, to move from one corner of a country eight capitalism and immigration to another, or from one country or continent to another, thus necessitating both internal and international migration. In its earliest days, this movement took the form of the slave trade the first forced, large-scale and cruel movement of labor in history. 
30 million Africans were transported as slaves across the Atlantic to the New World, of whom only 11 million survived the journey. Jamaica and the rest of the British West Indies were turned into colonial labor camps in a traffic so beneficial to the nation, in the words of a British Secretary of State in 1774. All of the members of the royal family and the great Whig families of England made fortunes out of this miserable trade in human flesh, fortunes which they invested in the construction of canals and coal mines. Those who made their fortunes in the slave trade included, Sir Isaac Newton, the famous scientist Sir John Vanberg, architect, playwright and founder of King's College, Cambridge the Earl of Halifax, founder of the Bank of England Thomas Lucas Lee, died in 1784, treasurer of Guy's Hospital Francis Baring, 1740-1810, founder of Baring's Bank William Beckfort. 1709-1770, Lord Mayor of London and the richest plantation owner. A 1720s contemporary list of shareholders of the slave Etreding South Sea Company, which took over from the Royal African Company when the latter lost its monopoly of the slave trade in 1698, names most of the 462 members of the House of Commons and half the members of the House of Lords. Britain's crucial part in the transport of African slaves on such a vast scale between 1500 to 1800 gave 9 CPGBML Britain a head start and, inter alia, helped to kick-start the Industrial Revolution. Apart from reflecting on the inhumanity and cruelty of the British ruling class, the transport of 30 million slaves across the Atlantic represents a successful attempt to satisfy the colossal demand for labor that marked the dawn of modern capital. In addition to slavery, capitalism has always relied on the free movement of labor workers seeking to escape poverty and unemployment go to the centers of developing or developed capitalism to meet the demand for wage labor thus initiating migratory movements within countries and across international frontiers. Really large-scale free movement of people in search of a livelihood began in its present form in the 19th century. In Britain, for instance, the enclosures of common land forced agricultural workers to leave the countryside en masse and head for the urban industrial centres just as the potato famine in Ireland drove significant sections of the destitute Irish population to head for Britain, there to work in factories, mines and on railway construction, or to cross the Atlantic to seek work in the USA. Throughout the 19th century, all Britain's cities were immigrant cities, filled by first or second generation migrants from the countryside of Britain, Ireland and Europe. Half the population of London during the 1880s had been born elsewhere. Capitalist development of the USA, Canada, Australia and Argentina took place on the back of populations overwhelmingly of immigrant origin. Just as capital moves from one place to another, and from one country to another, in search of profit, so does labor, overcoming many obstacles move in order to make a living and escape destitution and unemployment in places where capitalism has failed to develop altogether, or is insufficiently developed, or is in decline, to the centers of its expansion. 
the invention and development of the steam engine, and with it the railways and steamships, made migration, internal and external, a realistic ten capitalism and immigration proposition on a large scale. Consequently, by 1840, on average 70,000 people emigrated each year from Britain. In the mid-1850s this number doubled. Most emigrants went to Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the USA. As a result, by 1871, Britain had become a net exporter of people and, with a few notable exceptions, continued to be so throughout each successive decade right up to 1990. Europe a continent of immigrants Although Europe has traditionally thought of itself as a continent of emigration, it is nevertheless indisputable that immigration is an integral part of the European landscape. Following five centuries of intra-European migration, Europeans are a rather mixed people. A quarter of the French today have a foreign-born parent or grandparent, in Vienna, the figure is 40%. In the 18th century, when Amsterdam built its dikes and podders and cleared its bogs, it brought in northern German workers. When the French built their vineyards, they employed Spaniards. When London built its water and sewerage infrastructure, the Irish provided the labor as indeed they did from the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution. In the 19th century, when Baron Horseman rebuilt Paris, with wide boulevards so as to make barricade fighting next to impossible, he brought in Germans and Belgians. Europe not the Americas, as is usually thought was the main destination for Italians in their century of emigration from 1876 to 1976. Close to 12.6 million Italians went to other European countries a million more than those who emigrated asterisk the information in this paragraph comes from Racism and Immigration in Britain by Ruth Brown, International Socialism Journal, Autumn 1995. 11 CPGBML to non-European countries. While the USA was the destination for the largest number of Italians, 5.7 million, France, with 4.1 million, was not far behind, with tiny Switzerland receiving 4 million Italians, Germany 2.4 million and Austria 1.2 million. Since the Second World War alone, Europe has absorbed more than 20 million immigrants. One thing is clear, namely, that in comparison with the movement of people from the second half of the 19th century to the First World War, the present-day volumes are very small indeed. In the 40 years leading up to the First World War, migration raised the new world labor force by a third and lowered the European labor force by an eighth. If the migrants, 200 million, today constitute just under 3% of the global population, in the 19th century they represented 10%. Europe has absorbed more than 20 million immigrants. Today, intra-European migration is by and large uncontroversial, but in their time such migratory movements were just as controversial and it was just as sensitive an issue as is presently the immigration of non-Europeans into Europe. 
Immigrants seemed overwhelmingly alien to the locals and anti-immigrant sentiment was just as rife then as it is today. Asterisk in Britain during the second half of the 19th century, for instance, the strength of prejudice against Irish workers was no less than that encountered today by black immigrants in Britain and other imperialist countries. Anti-Irish sentiment, bordering on hysteria was whipped up by the capitalist press and, in the absence of a revolutionary leadership, the mass of the workers allowed themselves to be led along this path to impotence. In a letter of 1870 to Meyer and Vogt, Marx gave the following graphic description of the bourgeois-instigated anti-Irish RAC asterisk information in the preceding three paragraphs is drawn from the immigration fallacy by Saskia Sassen in Europe a continent of immigration. Financial Times, the 27th of October, 2004. 12 Capitalism and Immigrationism and National Chauvinism with which the working class was infected, every industrial and commercial centre in England possesses a working class divided into two hostile camps, English proletarians and Irish proletarians. The ordinary English worker hates the Irish worker as a competitor who lowers his standard of life. In relation to the Irish worker he feels himself a member of the ruling nation and so turns himself into a tool of the aristocrats and capitalists of his country against Ireland, thus strengthening their domination over himself. He cherishes religious, social, and national prejudices against the Irish worker. His attitude towards him is much the same as that of the poor whites to the niggers in the former slave states of the USA. The Irishman pays him back with interest in his own money. He sees in the English worker at once the accomplice and the stupid tool of the English rulers in Ireland. This antagonism is artificially kept alive and intensified by the press, the pulpit, the comic papers in short by all the means at the disposal of the ruling classes. This antagonism is the secret of the impotence of the English working class, despite its organization. It is the secret by which the capitalist class maintains its power. And that class is fully aware of it. Asterisk reasons for migration There are basically two causes of migration, namely, persecution or poverty. Historically, Persecution has given rise to migration. Jews in large numbers fled persecution in Tsarist Russia. Asterisk letter to Siegfried Meyer and August Vogt in New York from Karl Marx, April, 1870, K. Marx and F. Engels, Selected Correspondence, pp. 236-7. 13CPGBML at the beginning of the 20th century and fascist terror in Germany in the 1930s, and Palestinians fled persecution at the hands of Zionism in the wake of the latter's conquest of Palestine and the expulsion of its lawful owners at gunpoint. During the last 15 years, a considerable number of Iraqis, Afghans, Yugoslavs, Somalis, West Africans and those from the Lakes region of Africa have been driven to fleeing their countries as a result of imperialist wars and imperialist-inspired civil strife and persecution. It is equally natural for people to want to escape poverty and destitution and move to places that offer them the chance to earn a livelihood. People do not easily leave the countries in which they were born and brought up.
just as there were waves of intra-European migration during the 18th to 20th centuries, and even larger movements of population from Europe to North America and Oceania during the same period, in similar fashion are to be viewed the immigration of Mexicans and others into the USA and of Asian, African, Afro-Caribbean and other peoples into Europe, North America and Oceania. These immigrants from the poor and oppressed nations do not up sticks and move thousands of miles away into the imperialist heartlands for the quality of climate or cuisine or the warm welcome that awaits them on arrival. On the contrary, they are prepared to put up with a hostile, at times dangerous, environment because they have no other choice. They are prepared to be regarded as criminals for no greater crime than the desire to earn a livelihood for themselves and their families. The brutal history of colonialist loot and imperialist exploitation has left their countries of origin with a legacy of dire poverty, disease and hunger, which continues to be aggravated by unequal terms of trade and the massive burden of debt servicing. The 13 million children who die each year before reaching the age of five are an eloquent and damning testimony of the relationship between a handful of rich imperialist 14 capitalism and immigration oppressor nations and the vast majority of the poor oppressed nations. These 13 million children the equivalent of two and a half holocausts a year die in their mother's arms, unseen and uncommemorated. The political and ideological representatives of imperialism, which, be it said in passing, was the sole author of the Holocaust during the Second World War, while waxing eloquent every year on Holocaust Day, maintain a deadly silence on the far larger Holocaust taking place every year under their system. Capitalism long ago grew into a world system of colonial oppression and of financial strangulation of the overwhelming majority of the population of the world by a handful of advanced countries. Asterisk this handful of marauders shares the booty and, armed to the teeth, wages endless wars against the oppressed nations and from time to time draws the whole world into their war over the division of their booty. Asterisk without question. Capitalism has now singled out a handful of exceptionally rich and powerful states which plunder the whole world simply by clipping coupons. Asterisk with this colossal concentration of wealth in the imperialist countries on the one hand, and the equally colossal concentration of poverty in the oppressed nations on the other hand, it is hardly surprising that some of those from the oppressed na asterisk vi Lenin. Preface to the French and German editions of Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, October, 1921. 15 CPGB M. Elshans who are able to undertake the journey should attempt to escape starvation and earn a living in the centers of wealth and capital concentration. This is all the more so in view of the shocking disparities in wages. The real wages, for instance, of a bus driver in a rich imperialist country are 15 times as high as in a poor oppressed nation. That is why people from the poor countries are desperate to move. It is also why they are right to attempt to do so. No one in their senses moves out of a poor country into a poorer one. When the Europeans moved from one country to another, or from one continent to another, it was without exception a move away from poverty to better conditions of existence. 
why should it be different now? And this is the reason that today all the rich imperialist countries have become net recipients of immigrants. Thus the driving force behind this wave of immigration from the poor to the rich countries is the grossly uneven distribution of wealth across the globe. As long as this is so, the movement of people across international frontiers can no more be stopped than can the movement of people within the national frontiers of each country from the depressed areas to the economically vibrant zones. No matter what attempts are made to keep them out, the potential immigrants will not go away. On the contrary, the combination of porous borders with vast differentials in wages is a recipe for persistent pressure similar to that of the barbarians on the frontiers of the Roman Empire. Asterisk to the cries of those who, while accepting as a natural law the free movement of capital and goods across international frontiers, oblivious to ethnic, political and national boundaries. Asterisk Martin Wolf. Financial Times, 28 November 2001 16. Capitalism and Immigration Call for a Halt to Immigration The huddled masses from the poorer parts of the world pay no heed, for their desperation leaves them with no scope for the capacity to listen. According to Philip Stevens, for those locked out of the rich man's club, every unmanned border crossing, every gap in a fence, Every passing train, car or boat promises freedom and a future as long as there is chaos and poverty on Europe's periphery, the citizens of those countries will seek to escape. Pointing to the futility of attempts to keep out the desperately poor and persecuted, Mr. Stevens continues, none of this will work. Prohibition has already put migration into the hands of criminal gangs. The traffic in human misery now vies with the drugs trade as a source of billions for those who make their fortunes from the dark side of globalization. Europe's borders will always be porous. Knowledge of the drugs networks should have taught governments long ago that as long as there is demand there will be supply. Asterisk pinpointing the boundless cynicism of our politicians, Mr. Stevens says, it does not matter whether policies work. Perceptions are what count. Domestic electorates must be persuaded that their governments are being tough with scroungers and bogus asylum seekers. Asterisk and all this anti immigrant hysteria, the attempts to put an end to immigration and build a fortress Europe were being undertaken just as David Blunkett published, in early 2002, a asterisk Financial Times, 24 May 2005. 17 CPGBML White Paper Recognizing the Need to Open Up Routes to Legitimate Immigration into Britain Imperialism and Immigration One of the special features of imperialism is the decline in emigration from imperialist countries and the increase in immigration into these countries from the more backward countries where lower wages are paid. Asterisk this has been fully confirmed by patterns of migration into and out of countries that became imperialist by the close of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. Lenin, in the work quoted above says that emigration from Great Britain has been declining since 1884. In that year the number of emigrants was 242,000, while in 1900, the number was 169,000.
Emigration from Germany reached its highest point between 1881 and 1890, with a total of 1,453,000 emigrants. In the course of the following two decades, it fell to 544,000 and to 341,000. On the other hand, there was an increase in the number of workers entering Germany from Austria, Italy, Russia and other countries. According to the 1907 census, there were 1,342,294 foreigners in Germany, of whom 440,800 were industrial workers and 257,329 agricultural workers. In France, the workers employed in the mining industry are, in great part, foreigners, Poles, Italians and Spaniards. This trend, with a few variations, has continued down to asterisk vi Lenin, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, 1917, p127. Ibad, pp127-8. 18 Capitalism and Immigration The Present According to the International Organization for Migration, IOM, a Geneva-based intergovernmental body, during the 1990s, Europe became a continent of immigration. Asterisk this statement from the IOM marks a profound change in that the continent of Europe joins the United States, Canada and Oceania as a significant net recipient of immigrants. The number of immigrants into Western Europe has increased markedly since the Second World War. If, in 1950, Western Europe was home to 3.8 million foreign citizens, in 2003 this figure had risen to 20.5 million. Another 10 million were foreign-born, although by then no longer foreign nationals. The number has risen further since then. Between 1970 and 1995, the U.S. received a net inflow of 25 million foreign workers, while Canada received 3.4 million, Germany 2.7 million and France 1.4 million. These figures do not take account of illegal immigrants, who are believed to number between a third and half of new entrants into the imperialist countries. According to some estimates, the U.S. alone may be host to as many as 12 million irregular migrants, whereas the entry of irregular migrants into the European Union was estimated at half a million in 1999 a ninefold increase over a six-year period. In the five years to 2003, nearly a million migrants applied for regularization in the EU. By 2000, the gross migrant stock, foreign-born, stood at 35 million in the US, 7.3 million in Germany, 6.3 million in France, 5.8 million in Canada, 4.7 million in Australia and 4.5 million in the UK. In just the five years between 1998 and 2003, the number of foreign-born residents in Spain grew fourfold to 3 million accounting for 7% of Spain's population of 42 million. Asterisk IOM, World Migration 2003, Managing Migration, 43p. 19 CPGBML According to the 2001 census, 
of the 57.1 million people living in Britain, excluding Northern Ireland, more than 4.3 million were born outside the UK, accounting for 7.53% of the population, as compared with 5.75% in 1991. The number of people born abroad and settled in Britain has nearly doubled over the past three decades, and it underwent a rapid increase in the 10 years to 2001. While the decade 1971-1981 witnessed a rise of 360,371 in the number of foreign-born inhabitants in Britain, the following decade saw a rise of 402,245, and in the decade to 2001, the figure rose by 1.5 million thus accounting for more than half of the increase in the population as a whole. The major centre for immigration is the economically vibrant London area and the South East generally. Out of a total of London's population of 7.2 million, nearly a quarter, 1.78 million, are foreign-born. Asterisk net immigration into Britain stood at 40,000 a year in the 1980s. It went into reverse with the impact of the recession of the early 1990s with a net outflow of people in 1992 and 1993, after which the number of arrivals picked up averaging 60,000 a year over the 1994-97 period, jumping to 133,500 in 1998. Home Office Statistics which take into account refugees and temporary visitors who turn out to be permanent stayers put the net immigration into Britain at an average at 84,000 a year over the 10 years to 1997 forward slash 98, accounting for nearly half the 1.8 million increase in Britain's population between 198,898. And the government actuary, in the projections released in August, 2000 predicted more than half the expected 4.4 million rise in Britain's population by 2021 to come from immigration. According to the Financial Times of 25 October, 2000, however, about 400,000 people arrived legally in the UK in 1998 with asterisk Sunday Times, the 11th of September, 2005. 20 Capitalism and Immigration The intention of staying a year or more, but some estimates suggest that another 200,000 entered the country illegally. Correspondingly, employment over the 1994-98 period rose by 1.4 million, of which 20-30% is estimated to have been accounted for by immigrants. Over the five-year period to August, 2000, Britain gained nearly 400,000 people, mainly of working age. Asterisk in 1999, nearly 80,000 foreigners, mostly from the Philippines, India, Australia, and South Africa, came to Britain. In addition, another 100,000 and their dependents came to the UK to fill job vacancies, following the change of rules by the Home Office in September 2000 making it easier for people to enter the UK for work. In 2002, the UK took around 150,000 foreign workers, 
while in 2003 about 119,000 people entered Britain as work permit holders two and a half times the number in 1993. The largest number of these immigrants were from America, followed by Eastern Europe and the Indian subcontinent. Net immigration in that year, 2003, was 151,000 people, not taking into account the 40,000 asylum seekers. Since May 2004, when their countries joined the EU, 290,000 East Europeans applied to work in Britain. Of these, Polish workers accounted for 58% in the hospitality industry and 61% in the catering industry. Latvians and Lithuanians accounted for 26% and 21% respectively of the accession workers in agriculture. Some 7,500 workers from the accession countries registered as care workers in the three months to the end of September 2005. Over the same period, 700 teachers and classroom assistants, and more than 500 doctors and nurses, registered to work in the UK. Asterisk how migrants help keep Britain's economy healthy by David Smith, Sunday Times, the 27th of August 2000. Financial Times, the 25th of January 2005. Financial Times. The 23rd of November, 2005. 21 CPGBML The Financial Times of the 22nd of December, 2003 noted that net immigration had risen from around zero in the early 1990s to more than 150,000. If this trend were to continue, said the Financial Times, the UK's population would rise to 69 million by 2050 12 million more than it would be without immigration. In the five years from 1999 to 2003 inclusive, cumulative net immigration into the UK was close to 750,000. Of those born abroad, 1% were born in Ireland and 1.5% in the rest of the EU. According to official figures quoted by the Trades Union Congress, TUC, the working population born outside Britain grew from 7% to 9% of the working population of Britain between 1995 and 2002 certainly an underestimate as these figures do not include foreigners working illegally. It is well known that in London and in many other big cities the catering trade would grind to a halt without foreign workers a good many of whom go unrecorded in the data as they lack work permits. Asylum seekers in addition, there are the asylum seekers. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNCA, more than 6 million people applied for asylum in the high-income, i.e., imperialist, countries during the decade of the 1990s nearly three times the number, 2.2 million who lodged asylum applications in the 1980s. The collapse of the former Eastern Bloc regimes, the disintegration of the former Yugoslavia, instigated and abetted by US and EU imperialism, and the resultant Balkan Wars, as well as the First Gulf War, gave a spurt to the flow of refugees. 
from 200,000 in 1988, asylum applications to the then 15 EU member states jumped to 676,000 in 1992 during the War 22 Capitalism and Immigration in Bosnia. After lull, asylum claims surged again in 1999, with the war in Kosovo, by nearly 20% to 366,000. In 2001, Britain was at the head of the list with 92,000 asylum applications, followed closely by Germany and the USA. Considered as a percentage of the population, however, the countries most affected in that year were Austria and Switzerland. Although the flow of refugees into the heartlands of imperialism grabs the headlines, the truth is that most refugees do not end up in the rich countries. The biggest recipients are poor, oppressed, countries in Asia and Africa. It is on them that the burden of the cross-border flow of refugees falls most heavily. It is they who take 85% of the world's refugees. The countries that gave rise to the largest number of refugees in 2001 stood in the following order, Afghanistan, Burundi, Iraq, Sudan, Angola. Bosnia-Herzegovina and Somalia all victims of imperialist war, genocide and imperialist-inspired civil strife. Three. This does not, however, prevent the perpetrators of such wars and genocide from describing their victims as bogus, although these would have been on the top of anybody's list of countries from which to escape. Asterisk in any case, most asylum applications are rejected. During 2000 and 2001, for instance, Britain alone rejected the applications of 150,000 asylum seekers. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development (OECD), in 2000, refugees accounted for fewer than a fifth of the permanent immigrants into Australia, Portugal, Switzerland, the UK, Canada, the USA, and France. Stricter immigration laws and controls put in place by the imperialist countries, while reducing the opportunities for legal asterisk financial times, the 30th of July, 2003. Daily Telegraph, the 1st of January, 2002. 23 CPGBML migration, have increased the temptation for direct, trafficking, and indirect, asylum door illegal migration. In the words of the IOM, with the demand for legal migration opportunities outstripping supply, many people who are not refugees are seeking to gain access to new countries through the asylum channel in the absence of viable alternatives. Asterisk during the two years, 2000 and 2001, that followed changes to British law aimed at excluding economic migrants from Britain. There was an increase of 50,000 in asylum applications as compared with the two years, 1998 and 1999, preceding these changes. In 2000, 80,000, 98,000 if dependents are included, claimed asylum in Britain, the number falling by 10% in 2001, when 70,000 principal applicants, 88,000 with dependents included claimed asylum. The number fell sharply in the following three years to the end of 2004. Thus, 
rejected asylum seekers may well, and in many cases do, end up as illegal immigrants. Precisely this scarcity of legal channels for migration has given rise to a new flourishing industry in human trafficking and smuggling, estimated to be worth $13 billion a year. Between 400,000 to 500,000 illegal immigrants manage to slip or are smuggled into the EU each year. If these numbers are correct, this would mean that more illegal migrants are crowding into Europe each year than the 300,000 or so who enter America. According to The Economist, even though by posing as refugees, the false asylum seekers supposedly discredit the asylum asterisk IOM, opposite. 97p. The Economist, the 6th of May, 2024. Capitalism and immigration system, and undermine the tolerance of Europeans for those who genuinely need protection. Clamping down on phony refugees would not, by itself, weed out the economic migrants whose only sin, like those of generations before, is to be seeking a better life in the rich world. Unless they have an official means of trying to fulfill that ambition, they will bend the existing rules. As a European Commission immigration specialist argues, if you had a legal open front door for migration, you'd have far less pressure on the asylum back door. Europe has yet to recognize the image of itself as a continent of immigration, even though, over the centuries, its constituent bits have been refreshed by the new blood and vitality of migrants from within Europe itself. It may suit politicians, wary of Europe's xenophobic streak and mindful that labor needs today may evaporate if economic revival falters tomorrow, to keep it that way. Link between jobs and immigration There is plenty of statistical evidence to show that there is a clear and direct link between immigration and the availability of jobs in the country of origin and destination of immigrants. Thus, between the 1920s and 1930s there was a precipitate decline in immigration into Britain with only 7,000 a year entering during this period owing to economic depression and the resultant depressed labor market. This reduction in the number of foreign workers coming into Britain happened, as it has always done because of the economic conditions and not because of anti-immigrant legislation. When capitalism is experiencing a boom, and the labor mara 25 CPGBML kit is buoyant, nothing on earth can stop capital getting its hands on laborers. No immigration laws are allowed to bar capital's access to this, the only source of the extraction of surplus value. Since the mid-1970s, all primary immigration into Britain, as well as other Western European countries, has virtually ended. This has not put an end to foreign workers entering Europe. If they numbered 11 million in the mid-1970s, today their number is 20 million, not taking into account another 10 million who are foreign-born but European nationals. Referring to the keen awareness of the state of the British labour market gained by the citizens of Kingston, Jamaica, through their access to the British press and informal communications networks between immigrant workers already settled in Britain and friends and acquaintances back home, Ruth Brown says that, these informal processes, 
proved to be an extremely accurate mechanism for meeting labor demand in Britain and immigration levels consistently dropped very quickly after any drop in the number of advertised vacancies. Asterisk she adds, correctly, that, it, was only the racism of Britain's rulers some years later which destroyed this natural relationship between levels of migration and the level of demand for labor. Asterisk in the apt words of the Financial Times, long before the needs of the next boom are clear to lawmakers in capitals, they are often sensed by the would-be immigrants in the remoter countries of the globe. Asterisk Ruth Brown, opposite. Financial Times, the 25th of April, 2004. 26 Capitalism and Immigration The Commonwealth Immigrants Bill of 1962, as indeed all subsequent legislation to keep foreign workers out, played a crucially transforming role, while at the same time sharply increasing the number of workers from the Commonwealth. In the run-up to the introduction of this legislation, as well as in its aftermath, the entry of dependents of Commonwealth workers into Britain increased threefold, as dependents did all they could to beat the deadline, driven by the widespread fear that Britain was determined on a course of permanently closing the door to new Commonwealth citizens, as well as to the families of those already settled in Britain. From 21,550 new Commonwealth immigrants in 1959, their number increased to 58,300 in 1960. This number doubled again in 1961 with a record 125,400 new Commonwealth immigrants entering Britain. Thus, this racist piece of legislation succeeded in accomplishing the destruction of the previously existing correlation between the scale of immigration into Britain and the level of demand for labour. As the government at the last moment decided not to restrict, under the provisions of the 1962 Act, the right to family reunion of the Commonwealth workers already in Britain, it only managed to exacerbate the problem of its own creation. Attempts at tightening immigration controls in the USA had, predictably, results similar to those in Europe. Apart from making it more expensive and dangerous for those wishing to cross the border into the U.S., the controls have merely served vastly to increase the inflow of illegal immigrants into the U.S. In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed its first law aimed at preventing Mexicans from crossing the border. The 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, while offering an amnesty to three million undocumented workers, initiated the effort to stop further arrivals. Border security was tightened and employers were threatened with punitive fines if they employed illegal workers. Far from reducing the number of illegal migrants, the Act has 27 CPGBML had the opposite effect. The number of undocumented workers has grown from about 4 million in 1986 to some 12 million at present. While failing to stem the flow of immigrants, the crackdown, with its improved border security, claims 300 lives a year as desperate and destitute immigrants continue to make the perilous desert crossing. In the wake of the 1986 law, what was, in the case of the Mexicans at least, a circular pattern of migration, has become a settled pattern. Before the act, 
Mexican migrants crossed into the border states of California, Arizona and New Mexico, and most would leave when work dried up only to repeat the process the following year. Very few stayed permanently. If in the 1970s and 1980s, the average time for migrant labor in the U.S. was about two years, now it is over ten years. America is built on immigration and, as such, has a long history of immigrants legal or illegal, a tradition honored in the verse on the Statue of Liberty that exhorts the world to give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Asterisk. Let it be said in parenthesis that the verse belongs to a different era, when the USA could doubtless be associated with revolutionary democracy and all the freedoms associated with it. It has long since turned into an imperialist bloodsucker and a hangman of other people's liberties. And with it, Miss Liberty has come to represent us imperialist domination, war and brigandage. America no longer welcomes the huddled masses from abroad. It has grown mean-minded. It has built fences to stop migrants coming in, it fines employers and it jails and deports those found to be in the country illegally. In 1994, California asterisk the new Colossus by Emma Lazarus. 28 Capitalism and Immigration went to the extent of passing Proposition 187, under which illegal immigrants there were denied public education non-emergency medical treatment and other tax-funded benefits. In Arizona, several hundred volunteers, styling themselves after the Minuteman militia, who fought against the British colonial authorities in the American War of Independence, established desert camps in 2005 in support of the U.S. Border Patrol. In August, 2005, Arizona and New Mexico proclaimed a state of emergency on their borders with Mexico, assigning millions of dollars to strengthening immigration control efforts. Asterisk all these efforts have proved, and will continue to prove, fruitless. As long as there is destitution and poverty elsewhere and demand for the labor power of these victims of imperialist economics and politics the immigrants will continue to flock into the USA illegally if legal avenues are blocked. Like the British Home Office, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, in the US trumpets the number of illegal immigrants it captures, expels and repatriates. The dry statistics of the INS, dutifully regurgitated by the imperialist media, fail to portray even in the barest outline the emotions aspirations and humanity, the sacrifices and courage of those brave enough to run the wire. Speaking of the attempts of Mexicans trying to reach the USA, one journalist has written, driven as they are by grinding poverty, giving up is rarely an option with them precisely for that reason they will continue to risk all and throw themselves on the mercy of the road north. Asterisk information in the last four paragraphs is drawn from the Financial Times. 29 August, 2005 Financial Times, 23 February, 2000 29 CPGBML divisions within the ruling class The ruling class of Britain, as indeed of every other imperialist country, is divided on the desirability and usefulness of immigrants. As the economist of 29 June, 
2002 put it, politics and economics push the government in opposite directions. At a time when net immigration was running at 180,000 a year, the government's relaxation of immigration rules was accompanied by shrill rhetoric about illegal immigrants. Much of Europe's media are ridden with hysteria and its politicians struck by panic. The perception has been created that Europe has been overrun by immigrants and asylum seekers, when the truth is that the number of asylum seekers entering the EU has halved over the past decade and those claiming asylum each year represent no more than 0.1% of the EU's population, doing badly paid and dirty jobs no local will touch. Imperialist politicians, conservative and social democratic alike, driven solely by demagogy and cheap politics, shout in unison, the dikes must be plugged to halt the flood of asylum seekers and immigrants. In a confidential memorandum prepared for Tony Blair and leaked to The Guardian in the spring of 2002, its author suggested that British warships be dispatched to patrol the Mediterranean and intercept boats that might be carrying illegal immigrants who might end up in Britain, and that the Royal Air Force be pressed into service to effect the bulk removals of rejected asylum seekers. Towards the end of May, 2002, Blair told José María Asna, the then Prime Minister of Spain, that illegal immigration had to be the top item on the agenda of the summit of EU leaders due to be held in Seville the following month, June. It would appear that Britain is fighting on two fronts the war on terror 30 capitalism and immigration and the war against miserable asylum seekers and economic migrants. At the same time, the very same politicians and a significant section of the media are advocating a much more liberal policy on immigration. The same David Blunkett who, as Home Secretary, boasted towards the end of 2003 that 49 illegal immigrants had been picked up in a raid in Sussex in October of that year, also said that there was no obvious limit to the number of migrants Britain could absorb adding that he had no clue as to how many of Britain's immigrants were illegal. This being the case, the point of sensationally publicising the arrest and deportation of the 49 victims of his raid can only have been to incense public prejudice against immigrants and at the same time to assuage the bigotry of those who cannot stand immigrants. Typically, while publicly sensationalizing the immigration issue and inflaming racial tensions with an eye to the next election, the governments of the imperialist countries busy themselves on the quiet with securing immigrant labor to meet the needs of business. Thus is was that in the second half of September, 2000, Barbara Roche, the Home Office Minister at the time, signaled a relaxation of Britain's immigration laws in a speech stating that a certain number of skilled economic migrants were to be permitted to work in Britain for the first time since 1971. About the same time, after lengthy debates, the German cabinet approved its green card scheme to attract highly qualified information technology workers in the face of fierce opposition from the Kinderstadt in der Children Not Indians Brigade. And, in the USA, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, on several occasions emphasized the need for immigration to promote growth.
at a meeting of the Interior Ministers of the European Union in July 2000, Jean-Pierre Chevenement came up with a discussion paper arguing that the EU would need to admit 50 to 31 CPGBML 75 million immigrants by 2050 to take up vacant jobs. A few months later, Antonio Vitorino, the then Justice and Home Affairs Commissioner of the EU, made a speech in which he said that the time had come to recognize that the zero immigration policies of the previous 25 years were not working and, more importantly, had become irrelevant to the EU's economic and demographic conditions. The 25 years of zero immigration policy had harmed the European economy and into the bargain led to a rise in the number of asylum seekers and illegal immigrants accompanied by smuggling and trafficking in human beings. Asterisk on the 22nd of October, 2000, the European Commission launched a debate on immigration with a view to formulating a common policy after recognizing that the zero immigration policies of the past 20 to 30 years were no longer adequate. The Commission estimated that, while the working population of Europe would decline by 2025, the over 65s would rise and account for 22% of the population up from 15% in 2000. Three years later, the Commission estimated that the number of people of working age in the EU's then 15 member states would decline by some 40 million between 2000 and 2050 from 243 million to 203 million while the number of people aged over 65 was set to rise by 60% to 103 million. The implication of this is that the number of workers for every pensioner was destined to decline sharply, putting existing pension schemes under severe strain. Meanwhile, in 2000, a report by the United Nations Population Division forecast that, owing to a combination of low fertility and rising life expectancy, Europe's population was on course to shrink by 13% between 2000 and 2050, while asterisk Financial Times, the 12th of October, 2000. Financial Times, the 4th of October, 2003. 32 Capitalism and Immigration Its median age was set to rise by 10 years to 48. The report also forecast that the percentage of the global population living in the high-income countries was set to decline from 20% to 14% by 2050. While the report predicted a rise of 13% in the UK's population, thanks mainly to immigration, forecast at 136,000 a year, that of Southern Europe faced a steep decline because of very low fertility. However, the most spectacular collapses in population are likely to take place further east, with the Russian and Ukrainian populations declining by 30% and 36% respectively between 2000 and 2050. The report went on to argue that the EU needed net migration of 13.5 million people a year to stop the proportion of working-age people to pensioners from falling. As a result, the immigration needed by the EU to stabilize its old age dependency ratio would bring its population to 1.2 billion by 2050. In order to keep its working age population stable between now and 2050, 
at present birth and death rates, Germany would need to import 487,000 migrants a year, France would need 109,000 and the EU in its entirety 1.6 million. And to keep the ratio of workers to pensioners steady, the flows would need to swell to 3.6 million a year in Germany. 1.8 million in France and an astounding 13.5 million a year in the EU as a whole. On the other hand, in the absence of immigration, the population of the 25, after the 2004 accession of 10 new members, member states of the EU is forecast to drop from 450 million in 2004 to 400 million in 2050. This demographic change, says the European Commission, implies a sharp rise in the dependency burden as well as a decline in potential economic growth, which could result in the EU's share of the global gross product declining from 18% at the end of 2002 to 10% in 2050, while the share of the USA rises from 23% to 2033 CPGBML 6% during the same period a big shift in economic weight. Asterisk other imperialist countries, too, face similar problems on this score. A 2004 study by Goldman Sachs says that even in the US, immigration would have to increase by 30% a year to stabilize the ratio of working age population to the general population. In Japan, faced as it is with urgent and serious aging problems, immigration would have to increase by more than 700% a year, increasing the share of migrants in its total population from the present-day level of just over 1% to 20% by 2050. In 2005, two years earlier than expected, the population of Japan the world's 10th biggest country in population terms fell by 19,000 to 127.76 million. In a well-argued article, Samuel Britton says that, compared with a century ago, there is too little globalization the big difference being in migration policies. Many countries then allowed free inward and outward movement of workers. Restrictive immigration policies, he says, have the same effect as those in the area of drugs whereby prohibition produces the very evils it claims to prevent. He therefore proposes to abolish the distinction between economic migrants and asylum seekers and allow people to seek their fortune in any country of their choosing. Confining himself to Britain, he says that research shows that native wages have not been depressed. This point would be hotly disputed by many, because immigrants have tended to be asterisk financial times, the 3rd of March, 2003. Financial times, the 27th of September, 2004. Financial times, the 3rd of January, 2006. Let the huddled masses go free by Samuel Britton, Financial Times, the 25th of October, 2000. 34 Capitalism and Immigration Restricted to Three Types of Job, A. Public Services, Where Pay is Fixed by the Government and is Well Below Market Levels. The Effect of Newcomers is Simply to Reduce the Shortages, in London. 23% of the doctors and 47% of the nurses are non-UK born. 
Since Britain's article was published, the numbers have risen sharply. In 2002, more than 30,000 nurses of foreign origin were working in Britain's National Health Service. About one-third of the NHS staff were born overseas and, according to Home Office figures, 44,000 medical workers entered Britain in 2003 alone. More precisely, 31% of the doctors and 13% of the nurses working in Britain are foreign-born. Migration is massively important. The NHS would fall apart if we didn't have that asterisk said Dr Edwin Borman of the British Medical Council. There is an overall shortage of GPS, as well as a shortage of about 10,000 hospital doctors. Without recourse to foreign doctors this gap cannot be plugged in the near future. Recruitment pressures are likely to increase with the government committed to recruiting a further 35,000 nurses by 2008 and 100,000 nurses due to retire by 2010.B, low-paid and insecure jobs in sectors such as catering and domestic services, which unskilled natives are unwilling or unable to take. If migrants don't fill these jobs, they simply remain unfilled or uncreated. 70% of catering jobs are filled by migrants. C. Highly skilled information technology workers, whose inflow, according to a home office study, enabled the IT sector to grow faster rather than depressed pay in it. Apart from the asterisk this quote and information in the following paragraph taken from the Financial Times of the 14th of April, 2004 and the 28th of August, 2004. Financial Times, the 4th of May, 2005. 35 CPGBMLations, 150,000 French IT entrepreneurs arrived in Britain between 1995 and 2000. In addition, residential care homes, farming, contract cleaning, which employs 800,000, and the construction industry are heavily reliant on immigrant labour. Irish immigrant labour, on whom the construction industry was traditionally reliant, has now been replaced by the Portuguese, Poles, Ukrainians and Lithuanians. Without migrant workers contractors would struggle to complete many major projects, says Alan Ritchie, General Secretary of UCAT, the Construction Workers' Union. The sector would need, says the Construction Industry Training Board. 80,000 new entrants in each of the next five years to meet the growth and replace those leaving the industry. Mr. Ritchie says that measures are needed to protect foreign construction workers, whose rates of pay are 20 to 30 percent lower than those of indigenous workers. Asterisk even Martin Wolfe, a Financial Times analyst who is not much in favor of sizable immigration, has to admit that, if our aim were to maximize global economic output, we would abolish restrictions on the movement of people. If immigrants pay more taxes than they receive in benefits, there is a gain to the rest of society. Immigration, he says, saves some of the costs of training people, adding that, Britain does, an almost disturbingly good job of this, in 2002 asterisk Financial Times. The 4th of May, 2005. Financial Times, 
the 14th of April, 2004. 36 Capitalism and Immigration More than 30,000 nurses of foreign origin were working in its National Health Service. Some 42% of foreigners resident in the UK had tertiary-level education in 2001 and 2002, against just 29% of the native population. Immigration also gives access to languages and cultures. In the end, the prejudice against the foreigner takes the better of him, and Mr. Wolfe, who is himself a second or third generation Jew in Britain, concludes thus, yet the most important conclusion is that one's assessment of the desirability of sizable immigration is a matter more of values than of economics. It is not a choice between wealth and poverty, but of the sort of country one desires to inhabit. The implication is clear. Do we really want to be surrounded by these hordes from foreign lands? My parent or grandparents got in. That was good. But the door must be firmly guarded, if not completely shut now. Doubtless, the essence of much of this debate concerning immigration is about race and ethnic diversity, not economics. It is generally admitted that immigrants are resourceful, ambitious and entrepreneurial that they have made a valuable contribution in the fields of medicine, science, academia, sports, music, cuisine and the arts, as well as in business and in government, that millions of others, the less famous, play an equally vital role without them many health systems would be understaffed and many jobs that provide essential services and generate revenues would remain unfilled. Far from being benefit scroungers and a burden on society, immigrants contribute more in taxes than they receive in benefits. According to Treasury figures, in the 1998 forward 99 financial year, the immigrant population paid 10% more in tax, £31.2 billion, than it took out in benefits, £28.8 billion a net gain to 37 CPGBML the treasury of nearly £2.5 billion a year. Asterisk the treasury estimates that net immigration adds 0.4% a year to growth in the labor force and the GDP. Gordon Brown, in his role as Chancellor of the Exchequer, said that an increase in Britain's economic growth was in part due to immigration. The Financial Times of the 9th of October, 2000 having stated that between 1988 and 1997 the USA allowed twice as many legal immigrants, 9.3 million, as Western Europe, 5.3 million, added, now European economists are wondering whether there is reason for the US economic performance. Large sections of the economy, in particular the NHS, construction, contract cleaning and catering industries rely on migrant labor. The seemingly never-ending supply of foreign workers to Britain's shores may be part of the explanation for one of the economic puzzles of the past decade, how has the British economy managed to sustain strong growth without a jump in inflation? Indeed, inflation has consistently undershot most expectations, including those of the Bank of England. Migration has changed the way the Bank of England thinks about the trade-off between growth and inflation. All at once, 
Continued growth across the globe hinges on the asterisk Financial Times, the 23rd of January 2001. Sunday Times, the 11th of September 2005. Financial Times, the 24th of May 2002. The issue of immigrants and asylum seekers remains politically charged. But the increasing flow of workers from overseas may have helped keep inflation and interest rates down by Anna Fifield and Ed Crooks, Financial Times, the 28th of August, 2004. 38 Capitalism and Immigration Timely Appearance of the Man from Hyderabad. Even, German industry is swooning with desire for computer asterisk in addition. Immigrants are a source of valuable remittances to the countries they come from. Formal remittances by immigrants totaled $167 billion, 97 billion pounds, in 2004 up from $31 billion in 1990. This sum is almost triple the value of official aid to developing countries, and close to the amount they received in the form of foreign direct investment. Large as this sum is, it represents only the formal transfers. Informal transfers may have been twice that amount. While in 1995, official development aid stood at $59 billion and remittances also at $59 billion, in 2004, the aid had increased by a mere $20 billion to $79 billion whereas remittances had shot up to $167 billion, nearly triple their size in 1995. Thus it can be seen that immigrants play a very important role in alleviating world poverty. The biggest beneficiaries of these remittances are India, China and Mexico, who received $21.7 billion. $21.3 billion and $18.1 billion respectively in 2004. Britain's immigrant population alone remitted £2.7 billion pounds in 2004. The World Bank, basing itself on recent household studies, says that total worldwide remittances in 2005 amounted to $232 billion. $133.6 billion pounds, 198.4 billion euros. Of these, $167 billion went to developing countries. Real purpose while immigration controls do not stop the movement of labor, they are nevertheless a potent weapon in the hands of the Rural Asterisk Financial Times, the 25th of April, 2000. World Bank IMF and Britain's Department for International Development, cited in the Times, the 17th of November, 2005. Financial Times, the 16th of November, 2005. 39 CPGBML in class, for in periods of economic depression and worsening conditions for the working class, which are a recurrent characteristic of the capitalist mode of production. They enable the ruling class to shift the blame for these conditions away from the real culprit, capitalism, and onto foreign workers. These controls are aimed at, and actually achieve, pitting the older established section, many themselves first, second or third generation immigrants, 
of the working class against those newly arrived. Instead of a united working class fighting against the daily encroachments of capital and for the overthrow of capitalism, the only cause of their misery, one encounters the tragic spectacle of one section of the workers blaming another for conditions none of them are responsible for. This state of affairs assumes ludicrous proportions when second or third generation Irish, Jews and Southern Europeans single out the workers from the Indian subcontinent and the Caribbean as being responsible for the scarcity of jobs, bad housing conditions, lengthening queues at hospitals, etc. The latter in turn blame the Somalis and other recent entrants. This stupid blame game among different sections of the working class would be hilarious were it not so tragic. During the 19th century, the British ruling class had no use for immigration controls. Britain was the workshop of the world and its industry had an insatiable appetite for labour. It also enjoyed the reputation as a generous provider of political asylum and refuge to those fleeing persecution. At that time, free immigration went hand in hand with free trade. By the turn of the century, however, conditions had changed drastically. Britain faced competition from rising industrial powers, notably, Germany, the US and France, at the same time as it was in the grip of a deep economic recession with the resultant rising unemployment, massive cuts in living standards and widespread destitution. The working class responded with a strike wave and an explosion of new unionism, aimed at 40 capitalism and immigration organizing the unskilled masses of workers, most of whom had been left out of the unions and were treated with contempt by the organized labor movement, which represented only the skilled workers. These attempts to fight back were defeated by the ruling class. All the same with unemployment a perennial feature and discontent rife among the teeming millions of destitute proletarians, the bourgeoisie needed a weapon to divide, weaken and subdue working-class militancy. It found this weapon in the Aliens Act of 1905, which institutionalized the notion that immigrants alone were responsible for the increasing misery, destitution, squalor and mass unemployment wreaking havoc among the working-class. The introduction of this legislation was accompanied by a frenzied anti-Semitic campaign, led by the so-called popular press and demagogic bourgeois politicians, directed against East European Jewish workers fleeing persecution and arriving in the East End of London. One member of Parliament likened the arrival of the Jews to the entry of diseased cattle from Canada. Asterisk Liberal MP Cathcart Wilson blamed the inability of capitalism to solve the housing problem on the immigrant workers. In a base attempt to rouse the working class against poor immigrants, he demagogically and rhetorically asked, What is the use of spending thousands of pounds on building beautiful workmen's dwellings if the places of our workpeople? the backbone of the country, are to be taken over by the refuse scum of other nations, the aristocracy of labor, which constituted the official leadership of the working class movement, fell into line, as was to be expected, and did the bidding of the bourgeoisie. It held the asterisk Paul Foot, Immigration and Race in British Politics, 1965, 89 p.
cited in Ibad. 41 CPGBML immigrant workers responsible for rising unemployment and deteriorating conditions. From 1892 on, that is, more than a decade before the enactment of the Aliens Act, the TUC called for a complete end to all immigration. Ben Tillet, the Dockers leader, addressed the immigrant workers thus, Yes, you are our brothers, and we will do our duty by you. But we wish you had not come. Asterisk in 1903, and in the years following, the TUC passed a number of resolutions demanding tough legislation against immigrant workers, who, it alleged, were stealing its members' jobs, the Dockers' Union being the most vociferous in this context. Irrespective of their sufferings, the talents they bring with them, or their contribution to the economic, cultural and social life of the host country, the ruling class of Britain, or indeed of any other capitalist country, has routinely stoked up anti-foreign sentiments, leading, in times of war, to blind nationalism and roguish patriotism. The eve of the First World War coincided with a series of strikes in Britain, with four times the number of days lost through strikes as at the beginning of the 20th century. The national dock and rail strikes of 1911 were followed by a miners' strike in 1912. The outbreak of the war in 1914 furnished the perfect pretext for the British ruling class to unleash national jingoism on an unprecedented scale. Within weeks of the commencement of the war, the Aliens Restriction Act and the Defence of the Realm Act were rushed through Parliament. Under these pieces of draconian legislation, while nearly 29,000 Germans and Austrians were instantly expelled, another 32,000 non-British nationals were locked up in detention centres to remain there for the duration of the war. Asterisk quoted in Ruth Brown, Opsit. 42 capitalism and immigration newspapers of the day were littered with anti-immigrant and anti-German hysteria. Typical of the anti-immigrant venom was the Cardiff Herald, which wrote, You know, we know and they know that a Chinaman isn't worth a toss as a seaman, that his only claim to indulgence is that he is cheap. Asterisk on the anti-German national chauvinist front, Horatio Bottomley, editor of John Bull the magazine with the largest weekly circulation at that time, wrote, I call for a vendetta against every German in Britain, whether naturalized or not. You cannot naturalize an unnatural beast a human abortion a hellish freak. But you can exterminate it. And now the time has come. No German must be allowed to live in our land. The anti-immigrant and anti-foreigner language may have moderated somewhat since those days, but the virulent campaign against foreigners, laying at their doorstep all the ills of capitalism, continues unabated all in an attempt to exploit the insecurity of the workers under the conditions of capitalism by portrayal of the foreigner as an illegal, a social security scrounger, a criminal a drug trafficker and, increasingly, as a terrorist. For instance, the Daily Mail and The Sun run a regular anti-immigrant hate campaign. In July, 2004, The Sun wrote that bogus colleges were furnishing an easy route into Britain for illegal immigrants, saying, This scandal allows access to Britain for scroungers, prosty asterisk cited in Jenny Clegg, Fu Manchu and The Yellow Peril 
1994, 27p. John Bull, the 15th of May, 1915. 43 CPGBML tuts, crooks and perhaps even terrorists. In the run-up to the May 2005 general election, Michael Howard, the then conservative leader and himself the son of Jewish immigrants, leading a totally discredited party and with little to offer to the electorate, in typical scoundrelly fashion, latched onto the question of immigration, in a full-page advertisement in the Sunday Telegraph. He set out the Tory racist stall, claiming that there are literally millions of people in other countries who want to come and live here. Britain cannot take them all. Asterisk Labour countered it by an equally racist response. The Home Secretary, Charles Clark, assured the electorate in a strategy document on immigration that, his, top priority, was, public confidence in the immigration system. To counter the Tories' proposed quota system, Labour put forward a points system. Michael Howard also called for immigrants to be screened for diseases, following which the Daily Mail carried the banner headline, Our NHS, not the World Health Service. The intended incendiary effect of this front-page headline is not hard to realise. Gary Silverman commenting upon the attempts of the Conservative and Labour parties to present immigration as the asterisk the Sunday Telegraph, the 23rd of January, 2005. Daily Mail, the 16th of February, 2005. 44 Capitalism and Immigration Greatest Threat Facing the UK Today, had this to say, with general elections expected this year. The country's two major political parties are tripping over each other, trying to appear tougher on immigration. Labour wants a points system that would encourage only skilled workers to settle in the UK. The Conservatives favour quotas for foreign migrants. It's hard to avoid the impression that both parties are using the immigration issue to appeal to the less admirable instincts of the British public. Asterisk Gary Silverman is from New York. As such, he has personal experience of living in a city, which, in the words of Lenin, is like a mill which grinds up national distinctions and turns people of various nationalities into Americans without in the least threatening American identity. And what is taking place on a grand, international scale in New York, and in London, Paris, Rome, Madrid and Berlin, we may add, is also taking place in every big city and factory settlement. In an effort to assuage the fears of the average Briton aroused to anti immigrant frenzy by the unscrupulous bourgeois politicians and the press alike, Mr. Silverman goes on to say, From my perspective as a New Yorker, all this rhetoric about the UK being overrun by immigrants seems comical. In New York we are always being overrun by immigrants and the main consequence is the food tends to improve with each new group asterisk migrants, the more the merrier by Gary Silverman, Financial Times, the 12th of February, 2005. Critical Remarks on the National Question by V.I. Lenin, December, 1913, Collected Works, Vol. 20, 29p. 45 CPGBML of Arrivals My last neighborhood, in the borough of Queens, was positively surreal in its ethnic composition. 
we had ethnic Chinese from Argentina, ethnic Indians from Guyana, Jews from Uzbekistan, Jews from Afghanistan and Russian-speaking Koreans. We all survived. What is missing from the UK debate is a fully formed view of why migrants have been flocking to cities like London and New York. They are arriving because there is work to be done. Mr Silverman pokes special fun at the Conservatives, who are supposedly believers in free markets. What is more, they are not doing any favours to British business by standing in the way of cheap labour when in fact they should be fighting for more immigration as a way to lower labor costs, adding sarcastically that these guys can't even get their part in the class war right. No, Mr. Silverman, these guys have got their part in the class war right. They have access to all the cheap labor that British capital needs. The availability of the cheap labor is facilitated all the more easily through immigration controls with the consequent division into legal and illegal workers, which turns the latter, illegal workers, into the most exploitable material, while at the same time blaming them for all the calamities emanating from the normal workings of the capitalist system and thus pits one section of the working class against another to disunite and weaken the entire working class movement. Their dirty work done through such incendiary assertions and demagogic electoral platforms, the gutter press and the respectable bourgeois politicians alike leave the rest to fascist thugs to attack foreigners and the police to harass immigrant minorities and make their lives even more miserable than already is the case through surveillance, knocks on the door at night, raids, arrests and summary deportations. Given the hysteria skillfully manufactured by the respectable bourgeois 46 capitalism and immigration politicians and the gutter press, and the near absence of any working class attempt to counter it, it is not surprising that a Mori poll for the Financial Times found in August, 2004, just before the last general election, that 30% of people cited immigration and race relations as being among the most important national issues, compared with 14% in 2001 and only 3% in 1997, immediately after Tony Blair's first landslide victory. Asterisk continuing the same old shameful game of divide and rule. The present-day imperialist bourgeoisie is employing every weapon in its armory to divide the working class along national, religious and racial lines. European ministers, members of parliament, bourgeois journalists and mainstream media routinely refer to the asylum seekers, who are the victims of imperialist wars and imperialist-inspired civil strife, as bogus applicants with manifestly ill-founded claims whose applications must be rejected, for to do otherwise would be an abuse of asylum rights and would open the floodgates to the entry of undeserving hordes and cause a complete breakdown of the mechanisms for regulating the flow of asylum seekers. If this is the language of the respectable bourgeois, it is hardly surprising that the openly racist and fascist thugs, as well as the police and immigration officials, take their cue and get on with the business of victimizing workers of foreign origin, subjecting them to harassment and violence and openly calling for their repatriation. There is a kind of division of labor, 
not only between subtle racism of the respectable bourgeois and the crude racism of the fascist thug, but also between the concealed and hypocritical racism of the front bench and the raw, open and sordid racism of many a backbencher. Asterisk Anna Fifield and Ed Crooks, Opposite. 47 CPGBML Thus, one representative of the right, making the case against immigration back in 1991, argued that Britain could not accept every James Frederick Bonger Bonger as that would result in 100,000 people settling in Burton, doubling the number of families in bed and breakfast and an additional 100,000 on social security. Asterisk These were not the words used by the National Front, but by Ivan Lawrence, the influential chairman of the Conservative Home Affairs Backbench Committee and MP for Burton. Ivan Lawrence was by no means alone in expressing such rabidly anti-immigrant sentiments. His colleague, Tory MP David Evans, also speaking in November 1991 on immigration, asked the rhetorical question, why should this country be the world's dumping ground for asylum seekers? These two gentlemen were only following in the footsteps of Peter Griffith who in 1964 won the Smethwick parliamentary seat on the back of the racist slogan, If you want a nigger for a neighbor, vote Labour. The open racism of the type mentioned in the preceding paragraphs was merely an accurate reflection of the respectable racism of the then Tory Prime Minister John Major. Arguing for strong European borders against immigrants, Major said, We must not be wide open to all comers simply because Paris, Rome or London seem more attractive than Bombay or Algiers. He urged the need to guard against a torrent of asterisk the Scotsman, the 14th of November, 1991. 48 Capitalism and Immigration Illegal Immigrants, Drug Pushers, Criminals and Terrorists Having emotively jumbled together these disparate groups in an attempt to obliterate the boundary line between them and rouse racial tension, Major hypocritically went on to reason that immigration controls were in the interests of good race relations. This is the stock argument, as we shall see later, of Tory and Labour hypocrites alike that immigration legislation must be tightened as the only route to racial harmony. In the final analysis, this argument boils down to this, to ensure good race relations. Every attempt must be made to exclude from our society all members of other races whatever that might mean. John Major's government doubled the carrier's liability fine in 1991 and, as a result, the number of asylum applicants reaching Britain halved by the end of 1992. The result was that thousands of refugees found themselves stranded, unable to flee persecution and worse for they could not persuade carriers to transport them without the requisite legal documentation. By 1991, visa requirements for travel to the UK had been imposed on the citizens of nearly 100 countries. Major's government added further countries to the list in order to block the entry into Britain of people displaced by imperialist-led and imperialist-inspired wars in the Balkans and elsewhere the victims of the wars in former Yugoslavia, Iraq and Sierra Leone being the prime examples in this context. 
further draconian measures were enacted through the 1993 Asylum and Immigration Appeals Act. Britain is by no means alone in pursuing this racist, inhumane, anti-immigrant and anti-asylum program. Since the late 1980s, the European Union has streamlined and coordinated its policy, which seeks to deny freedom of movement, the right to family reunion, the right to political activity and to belong to a trade union, let alone a political organization. This policy is carried out to the accompaniment of denial of access to EDUCA 49 CPGBML health provision, employment and social security to those unfortunate victims of imperialism who manage to escape immediate deportation upon arrival. In Fortress Europe, the relaxation of internal border controls goes hand in hand with tough external controls. While the 1985 Schengen Treaty put in place the framework for the EC, now the EU, border controls, the Trevi Group of EU Interior and Justice Ministers, whose proceedings are marked by a cloak of secrecy, has formulated most of the EU's immigration and asylum policy, whose influence is clearly visible in Britain's legislation on carriers' liability. The purpose of all legislation in this area is to denude those who would attempt to migrate to, or seek asylum in, the EU of every right and to make it pretty unattractive for them to embark upon this hazardous enterprise. For instance, under the 1993 Asylum and Immigration Appeals Act, those who reach Britain through a third country regarded as safe by the Home Office are excluded, as are those arriving without proper documentation. Applications must be lodged promptly, and, if rejected, the applicant is given only 48 hours in which to lodge an appeal. The denial of accommodation to the applicant is accompanied under the Act by the power to detain him forward slash her in some high-security prisons or in purpose-built detention centres. Abolition of legal aid, compulsory fingerprinting stiff fines on airlines carrying unsuccessful asylum seekers and fast-track deportations of applicants refused permission to stay these are all part of everyday life in democratic Europe, which, along with the USA, has arrogated to itself the right to pass judgment on the democratic credentials of foreign governments. 50 Capitalism and Immigration Method Behind Madness It would be wrong to conclude from the foregoing that there is no method in the madness of the ruling bourgeoisie. Immigration controls, with their implied message that immigrants, not capitalism, are the problem, divide the working class by pitting its indigenous section against the foreigners. As such, they are a powerful ideological weapon in the hands of the bourgeoisie a weapon directed against the proletariat in its entirety. In addition, by creating the conditions for illegal entry of foreign workers, and the resultant distinction between legal and illegal immigrants, these controls create nightmarish conditions for those entering illegally, thus making them the perfect material for super-exploitation resulting in slave-like working conditions and leading, in a large number of cases, to dependence on criminal gangs, sexual slavery, child prostitution and child labor. They are the source of wage subsidies to the employers and price subsidies to the general public. Bridget Anderson, 
the author of an early 2005 TUC report on immigration, clearly demonstrates that conditions of most shameful exploitation, to which foreign workers are often subjected particularly in the areas of contract cleaning, care homes, construction and agriculture are crucial to the functioning of the economy. In this report, she provides a wealth of detail on the exposure of foreign workers to conditions of forced labor mediated by violence, intimidation, debt bondage, confiscation of identity documents with the resultant restriction of movement, and work permits, if they have any, that bind foreign workers to a particular employer. Capital needs a vast reservoir of workers who can be hired and fired instantly. The Morecambe Bay tragedy of the 5th of February, 2004, when 21 Chinese Coq 51 CPGBMLers were drowned, and the 58 Chinese would-be immigrants suffocated in the back of a lorry in June, 2000 are just two of the examples of the tragic consequences of imperialist immigration controls. In a remarkably candid article in the Financial Times, Mr. Christopher Caldwell accused David Blunkett. British Home Secretary at the time, and who had boasted that there was no obvious limit to the number of immigrants Britain could absorb, of demagogy for drawing a sharp distinction between legal and illegal immigration. And this because if mass migration is a natural outgrowth of the global economy, it is precisely illegal immigration not legal that provides the economic bonanza. A Bangladeshi physicist who joins a university in Los Angeles or Paris on a work visa will probably produce as much and get paid as much as his American or French colleagues. It is his impoverished compatriot, the illiterate Bangladeshi janitress working for less than the minimum wage, who is the revolutionary figure. She and others like her enable lifestyles that would otherwise be impossible. You can see why the leftist insistence on the term undocumented immigrant for illegal alien is not mere political correctness. To call immigrants illegal is just to misname the subsidy they provide to employers through their ineligibility for insurance and minimum wage laws. Economically, it is worth having such immigrants only if they live under a different political regime. Asterisk let us take the example of the USA in this context. There are reliably said to be 12 million illegal, undocumented, immigrants in the U.S., including 6 million Mexicans, with a continued an asterisk Financial Times, the 22nd of November, 2003, our emphasis. 52 Capitalism and Immigration Newell inflow of undocumented Mexicans estimated to be in the order of 500,000. Illegal Mexicans represent 18% of Los Angeles' construction workforce and account for 10% of the total labor force in a region that generates 30% of California's gross product. In California, the USA's leading food-producing state, with the heaviest concentration of legal and illegal Mexican-born workers, 400,000 work on farms that generate more than $20 billion a year. California is believed to be home to about 50% of all illegal Mexicans in the USA, although the demand for labor is taking them all across the country. In Washington state, where farming is the third largest industry, 
fruit growers claim that up to 70% of the 70,000 they employ at peak harvest times are illegal. Reliable estimates have it that 600,000 of the USA's farm labor force of 4 million carry no documents. Driven by desperation and destitution, on average 300 Mexicans lose their lives every year as they run the wire to undertake the lowest paid jobs in the USA. And their contribution to the U.S. economy may be gleaned from an estimate by the Cato Institute, according to which the cost of fruit and vegetables would increase by 6% if U.S. farms were denuded of illegal farm workers. And their role as unrecognized fighters against inflation was acknowledged by Alan Greenspan, Federal Reserve Chairman, in January, 2000 when he suggested that immigration policies would need to be relaxed if growth was to be sustained at the then-existing pace. Thus it can be seen that illegal immigration is a source of huge enrichment to the bourgeoisie, while at the same time serving as a scapegoat for the ills of capitalism and as an instrument for sowing deep divisions within the working class. Asterisk most of the information in the preceding paragraph is drawn from Financial Times. 23rd of February, 2000. 53 CPGBML Electoral Advantage Finally, anti-immigrant hysteria and demagogy are a convenient ploy routinely used by bourgeois parties in all the imperialist countries for gaining electoral advantage. Every British election since the passing of the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act has been preceded by the spectacle of the two major bourgeois parties. Labour and Tory, tripping over each other in an effort to appear tougher on immigration. Ever since the Smethwick election it has been quite clear that immigration can be the greatest potential vote loser for the Labour Party. So wrote Richard Crossman in his diaries, adding that he saw nothing but disaster if it, the Labour Party, was seen to be permitting a flood of immigrants to come in and blight the central areas of our cities. Asterisk as it had been an imperialist and a racist party right from its inception, Labour has had little difficulty following Crossman's advice, as we shall see. From then on it was to be an auction between the Conservatives and Labour as to which one of them was tougher on immigration. Whereas Dennis Healy, on behalf of the Labour opposition's front bench, was prepared, as late as the committee stage of the 1962 bill, to tell a mass meeting of Commonwealth and immigrants organisations in Britain that a Labour government would repeal the Tory legislation. By the end of 1962, Labour leader Harold Wilson was busy assuring Parliament that asterisk cited in Ruth Brown, opposite. 54 Capitalism and Immigration Labour no longer opposed the need for immigration controls. Increasingly, Labour MPs in the early 1960s enthusiastically asserted that Britain could not afford to be the welfare state of the whole of the Commonwealth. Asterisk during the 1964 election campaign, twice as many Labour candidates as Tory included the question of immigration in their election addresses, with nearly all of them stating clearly that Labour was keen to continue the immigration policies of the Conservative government. In the Wandsworth Central constituency, the Labour candidate went to the length of issuing a leaflet-headed things about immigration the Tories want you to forget. The leaflet stated, among other things, 
that large-scale immigration has occurred only under this Tory government. The Tory Immigration Act has failed to control it immigrants of all colors and races continue to arrive. Labour's election manifesto clearly stated that it would retain immigration controls whatever the circumstances, while negotiating with the governments of Commonwealth countries over means of putting an end to immigration at source. The reasons for Labour's vault farce were its racism and electoral opportunism. It feared the loss of electoral support unless it took a tough stance on immigration. Having won the 1964 election, far from repealing the 1962 Act, Labour went on to strengthen it further. The year 1968 saw a major immigration scare with the expulsion of Asians from Kenya a scare that had more to do with the political battles between Harold Wilson's foundering Gov. Paul Foote, opposite. P-177. Cited in Paul Foote, Ibad, P-181. 55 CPGBML Earnment and the Tory opposition than with the 27,000 Kenyan nations who eventually managed to settle in Britain. Labour's response to the arrival in Britain of a few Kenyan nations, and to the hysteria provoked by it on the part of the Conservative Party and the gutter press was to rush through Parliament the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act in a record three days. Although they held British passports, the Kenyans were denied the right of entry into Britain under this legislation. At a stroke, 150,000 Asians were rendered effectively stateless. Feeling upstaged by Labour, Enoch Powell, then a member of the Conservative front bench, made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech in response to the 1968 Act, with the intention of inflaming racist sentiments and luring voters away from Labour. Shamefully, not only Smithfield meat porters but also dockers, hitherto one of the most militant sections of the British working class, demonstrated in support of Powell's calls for further draconian restrictions on immigration, especially from the new Commonwealth. At the same time, an opinion poll revealed that 74% of the British population backed Powell's views. Powell's flagrantly racist pronouncements, in view of his membership of the front bench, proved embarrassing for the Conservative Party. As a result, he was sacked from the shadow cabinet, although Powell, in a manner characteristic of him, had done no more than draw the logical conclusion from what both the major parties, Labour and Conservative, had stated about immigration and the Kenya nation scare in the run-up to the 1970 general election. Labour lost the 1970 election all the same, leaving behind a shameful legacy of racism, which even the right-wing Conservatives could view only with envy. On returning to power in 1974, Labour continued its racist policy only much more 56 capitalism and immigration openly and flagrantly. While the government ordered gynecological examinations of Asian women, supposedly to determine their virginity, its leading spokesmen became more brazen by the day in expressing their racist views. Joining the racist hysteria surrounding the expulsion from Malawi in 1974 of a mere 250 Asians who held British passports, Labour MP Bob Mellish said that, people, 
cannot come here just because they have a British passport full stop. The case of the tiny group of Malawiations also served to furnish proof that immigration controls have little to do with numbers and everything to do with inflaming racist tensions, dividing and weakening the working class, and gaining electoral advantage through appeals to the basest sentiments of the most backward sections of the population. By 1978, Labour spokesmen were no longer ashamed of admitting, as did Merlin Rees on television, that all immigration legislation was designed to stop coloured immigration. Doubtless, this had been the accepted premise of Labour's policy on immigration, which had been put forward by its own committees in the early 1950s and which was enshrined and institutionalised in the 1962 Act and every subsequent piece of legislation on immigration. The major difference was the audacity with which its spokesmen were, by 1978, admitting it openly. Less than a decade later, at a time when primary immigration had been reduced to negligible levels, the Conservatives revived the race scare in the approach to the 1979 general election. Appealing to the basest instincts of the most backward sections of British society, Margaret Thatcher spoke thus, The British character has done much for democracy, for law. 57 CPGBML and done so much throughout the world that if there is any fear that it might be swamped, people are going to react and be rather hostile to those coming in if you want good race relations you have got to allay people's fear on numbers. The implication of the above remark, saturated through and through with racism and imperialist chauvinism, is clear, the voters had better opt for the conservatives, for they were the true party of race nation and empire. Thatcher's statement helped the Conservatives on the one hand to outbid the equally racist Labour government, which had earned notoriety for having introduced virginity tests on Asian brides, and on the other hand to undermine support for the National Front, which had secured 120,000 votes in the 1977 London Council elections. For its part, Callaghan's Labour government sent thousands of policemen to protect a provocative fascist election rally in the predominantly Asian West London suburb of Southall and to attack the 5,000 anti-fascists demonstrating against the presence of a few dozen fascists in an area where nobody, for obvious reasons, votes for them. In the resulting carnage, 1,000 people were injured, one man, Blair Peach, was killed. 800 people were arrested and 342 prosecuted, 85% of those charged were convicted and received in most cases stiff fines or jail terms. Prime Minister Callaghan perversely blamed the troubles on outside agitators. In spite of this shameful behaviour, Labour went on to lose the 1979 general election for during its term of office it had attacked working-class living standards through the social contract with the trade union leadership, presided over the tripling of unemployment from 500,000 to 1.5 million, instituted savage cuts in health, education and welfare services, at the same time as galloping inflation further 58 capitalism and immigration eroded the purchasing power of pensioners as well as of those in work. 
all these factors created a fertile ground for the renewal of a racist offensive, which Thatcher's conservatives were successfully able to manipulate to their electoral advantage. Labour's parting contribution to further tightening immigration controls was its Green Paper on Nationality Law, several proposals of which were later incorporated into the Nationality Act 1981 by the incoming Thatcher Conservative government. This act took away the right of citizenship from a large number of the new Commonwealth citizens, who had until then been classed as British citizens. The Nationality Act was introduced to the accompaniment of boastful, not to say shameful, claims by many a Conservative MP that racism amongst British people was a natural instinct. Conservative MP Tony Marlow had these delightful words to utter in this context, People have criticized these measures because they say they are racialist, as if a word of abuse. What does racialist mean? It means tribal. After all, man is a tribal animal. We have a feeling of kith and kin for people like ourselves, with our background and culture. Asterisk with this open wearing of the racist badge with pride by mainstream conservative MPs, not surprisingly. Groups further to the right felt much encouraged and emboldened during Thatcher's first term as Prime Minister. The notorious Monday Club was reactivated by the likes of Enoch Powell and Harvey Proctor, both Tory MPs, and the club's Immigration and Repatriation Policy Committee regularly advocated in the early 1980s the forced repatriation from Britain of 100,000 new Commonwealth immigrants every year. Asterisk quoted in R. Miles and a Physically, White Man's Country, 1984, 96p. 59cpgbml There was a parallel shift to the right in academic circles in the 1980s, with publications such as the Salisbury Review routinely supporting forced repatriation, as well as coming up with pseudoscientific claims linking black immigrants to vastly disproportionate amounts of violent crime. The reactionary imperialist gutter press popularized the caricature figures of the West Indian mugger and the wily Asian, with the latter being accused of abusing the arranged marriage custom so as to evade immigration laws. As a result, the police were given the nod by the government to harass black people in Britain, with frequent raids by the police and immigration officials, principally on Asian business establishments with large workforces. Although they had committed no offence, many were arrested and questioned under a plethora of immigration laws and rules. In the run-up to the 1986 general election, the last to be fought under Thatcher's leadership, the Conservatives started a new immigration scare, with the government bringing in new restrictions for visa applications from Asia thus knowingly creating hold-ups at Heathrow as the intended targets of these restrictions hurried to beat the deadline. The government then used the chaos as proof that Britain was in danger of being swamped by a new wave of immigration. The government's actions led to a spate of racist attacks. A headline in the sun screamed, 3,000 Asians flood Britain asterisk not surprisingly, the same night. Some local racist thugs daubed 3,000 more and Paki Patel across the entrance door of a nation news agent.
notwithstanding the deplorable spelling there was no ambiguity about the message behind these slogans. Asterisk the Sun, the 15th of October, 1986. 60 Capitalism and Immigration in the run-up to the 1997 general election, which brought Blair's labor into office, in the auction over race and immigration, while the conservative spokesman, Michael Howard, desperately tried to put clear blue water between his conservative party and labor, in attempting to play the race card yet again, Jack Straw, then Labor's shadow home secretary retorted by truthfully asserting that you couldn't get a cigarette paper between Labour and the Tories. Over the question of immigration. Asterisk thus, by its own admission, Labour's policy on immigration is identical to that of the Conservative Party. They are as racist as each other. Labour had correctly characterised the 1993 Asylum Act, enacted by the Conservative government, as shabby and mean. Since coming to power, it has gone much further. Enduring bond between state and unofficial racism Racism has been at the heart of immigration legislation in Britain. A cabinet committee set up by Labour as far back as 1951, when the demand for immigrant labour was extremely high, and British politicians and businessmen were engaged in the active recruitment of foreign workers, recommended that. Immigration restrictions in the future should, as a general rule, be more or less confined to coloured persons. These recommendations were to be built on by successive British governments in a series of legislative measures. This fact is of cardinal importance, for it summarily disposes asterisk The Guardian, the 3rd of March, 1995. Our miles and a physically, PP 148-49. 61 CPGBML of the myth that if governments do not take decisive action against the entry of foreign workers, extreme right and racist organizations will exploit public fears. Better then, so runs the argument, let Jack Chirac and Tony Blair construct the new European fortress than hand the keys to Jean-Marie Le Pen's Front National and its British counterparts. The truth, however, is that there is a close, strong and enduring bond between state racism and the racism of the unofficial fringe organizations. Each time the state enacts restrictive and racist legislation, it not only takes on board and implements a part of the policies and program advocated by the racist groups, it also encourages the latter to make further demands in the area of immigration policy. For every piece of immigration legislation, with its implicit message that the arrival of foreign workers, especially black, is an unmitigated disaster, that it is these foreign workers, not capitalism, who are responsible for all the ills of present-day society, constitutes a standing incitement to racism. Labour and conservatives alike have resorted to the demagogic pretext that strict immigration controls are essential for good relations and to keep fascism at bay. In the memorable phrase of Labour's Roy Hattersley in 1965, without integration, limitation is inexcusable, without limitation, integration is impossible. In modern speak, Roy Hattersley's syllogism parades as firm but fair immigration controls. 
while the explicit basis of Hattersley-like assertions is that the fewer the immigrants the better it is for harmonious race relations, their implicit message is that only the total absence of foreign workers can keep racial peace. The truth is that these assertions are made by bourgeois politicians to lend a veneer of respectability and moral legitimacy 62 capitalism and immigration to the racist immigration legislation and controls instituted by the state. For it is crazy to believe that unleashing immigration officers to practice racism at the point of entry, and to let the police loose on ethnic minorities in fishing raids is the best means of promoting integration and good race relations and keeping the racists at bay. In the name of saving Britain from the far right, the two major bourgeois parties, Labour and Tory, are tripping over each other to adopt the policies advocated by insignificant fascist organisations. Writing in The Observer, Nick Cohen presented the Blair government's position on immigration and asylum in these sarcastic terms unless they are tough on crime and drive asylum seekers into prisons and beggary, say the Blairites, the streets will be filled by men in black leather itching to invade Poland. The only way to save us from neo-fascism is to triangulate, sick, with neo-fascism. David Blunkett, has been raising the phantom menace of the far-right in, an attempt to provide, political cover for policies he would push for if the BNP did not exist. Asterisk Blunkett, as Home Secretary, justified instructing immigrants to speak English at home and his plans to hold the children of asylum seekers in segregated classrooms on the pretext that if he did not act this way, the right will step into the gap. Of course, the real reason was that once children go to a local school and form friendships with local children and community bonds develop between their parents and those of the local population, it becomes very difficult to expel foreign workers. David Blunkett stated it frankly in Parliament, asterisk how frightening are they, by Nick Cohen, The Guardian, 13 October 2002. 63 CPGBML The difficulty sometimes with families whose removal has been attempted is that their youngsters have become part of a school, making it virtually impossible in some circumstances to operate the managed system to which we should all sign up. During the 1990s, before the BNP won a seat on Burnley Council, the Conservative and Labour parties vied with each other in announcing crackdowns on criminals and asylum seekers in every session of Parliament. Nick Griffin, the leader of the BNP, acknowledged their help in these words, The asylum seeker issue has been great for us. The issue legitimizes us. Nick Cohen makes the correct observation that if Blairites believe they are responding to a future BNP threat, then they must acknowledge it is a threat they helped create, and that today we are getting a touch close to far-right policies from a party which doesn't actually call itself far-right. In other words, Labour is the BNP it pretends to be saving us from. Far from being alien to the traditions of British bourgeois democracy, the BNP is a product of it, it does not manufacture racism, it lives off it. And, over the past four decades, through their pronouncements and legislative measures, 
Labour and Conservatives alike have carefully prepared the conditions for making racism respectable and making it far easier for the BNP to feed off this state racism. Here are two examples of attacks on the British Muslim community, indistinguishable from each other. The first from Des 64 Capitalism and Immigration Peaceable Nick Griffin, chairman of the BNP, and the second from the equally despicable Peter Hain, presently Labour Northern Ireland Secretary and Minister for Europe at the time of his utterance on Muslims. None of this should be held against ordinary Muslims, many of whom are not much more Muslim than Britain is Christian. Any hostility directed to them can only drive them into the arms of the fundamentalists. But an understanding of what the Quran really says should lead anyone with an ounce of common sense to realize that a growing Muslim population is a recipe for communal strife and violence, particularly in a country where political correctness prevents the political establishment from closing the gates to the immigration flood taking steps to reverse the tide, and saying to a minority which sees expansion and domination as its religious duty, mend your ways and keep yourselves to yourselves or get out. Asterisk some Muslims, he says are cutting themselves off and feeding both right-wing politics and their own extremists, we need an honest dialogue about the minority of isolationists fundamentalists and fanatics who open the door to exploitation and who provide fertile ground for Al-Qaeda extremists. Muslims are welcome but Muslim immigrants could be very isolationist and need to integrate more, he argues. Such is Labour's position on immigration and asylum that in 2002 we had the bizarre spectacle of the conservative shadow minister Oliver Letwin criticizing Labour's David Blunkett for using the expression swamp in regard to immigrants and asylum seekers. Asterisk the real face of Islam, Nick Griffin, October, 2001. Peter Hain, interviewed in The Guardian. 13 May 2002. 65 CPGBML It is the same with the foul British press. Paul Dacker, the editor of the Daily Mail, which in the 1930s shouted hurrah for the black shirts, defends his paper's relentless characterization of refugees and asylum seekers as thieves leading a luxuriant life at the expense of a hard-working and cheated Middle England by asserting that unless he tackles the issue you are going to give rise to the ugly right wing. The goof doesn't realize retorts Mr. Cohen, that he is the ugly right wing. While the BNP received 0.2% of the vote in the 2001 general election and won three of the 5,878 seats up for grabs in the May 2002 council elections, the Labour Party are busy, as were the Tories earlier, carrying out the programme of the BNP. And yet, the Trotto revisionist fraternity are in favour of canvassing support for the Labour Party on all kinds of pretexts including the need to keep the BNP out. Immigration controls stoke up racism by creating, on the one hand, the division between immigrant and non-immigrant workers and, on the other hand, the division between legal and illegal immigrants. While the immigrants are blamed for unemployment, housing shortages and other social problems under capitalism, 
the so-called illegals bear the brunt of the state's repressive machinery and the vitriol of the bourgeois politicians and the popular press alike. Not only they, but the entire communities they are associated with, are spied on and harassed by the machinery of law enforcement. Here is just one example of the hysteria surrounding these unfortunate victims of imperialism. Under the provocative and racially inflammatory banner headline Lunatic Asylum, the son of the 14th of February, 2001 stated that whereas 3,200 new illegal immigrants were setting up home in Britain every month, swamped immigration officials are kicking out just 12 new bogus asylum seekers a month. 66 Capitalism and Immigration adding that the fiasco was a bitter blow to Home Secretary Jack Straw, who had claimed that he was winning the war on illegal immigrants. The scoundrels of the Immigration Service Union joined this racist campaign, stating that the Home Office is stretching the truth. People on the streets know exactly what's going on and can see it day by day. A hundred thousand people applied for asylum in 2000, out of which 79,000 were judged to be bogus. Of these, 9,000 were deported. The Immigration Union declared these removal figures to be misleading as they made no distinction between voluntary and forced removals. The union's claim was clearly aimed at undermining the government's efforts to be seen as being tough on asylum seekers and was eagerly seized upon by the opposition conservatives as an electoral windfall with which to portray Labour as a soft touch on immigration. The immigration union obviously relishes far more the spectacle of forced removals, with all the attendant publicity and the racist hysteria, than the voluntary and quiet departure of rejected claimants. Through a division between legal and illegal workers, ethnic minorities, especially non-white workers, are perceived, and targeted, by the police and immigration service as potential illegals whose immigration status must be checked before allowing them access to jobs, housing, education, healthcare and benefits thus effectively turning employers, doctors, benefit officers and local government employees into immigration officers. This is not the road to integration. On the contrary, it is the surest means of institutionalizing and firmly entrenching racism in every school, hospital, doctor's surgery, benefit office and local authority. For our part, we are firmly of the opinion that it is not in the 67 CPGBML interests of the proletariat to stand for privileges for any nationality, national or racial grouping. The proletariat stands for and welcomes every kind of assimilation except that which is founded on force or privilege. Asterisk the seven decades of the existence of the Soviet Union shall forever bear eloquent testimony to the fact that it is capitalism not racial, religious and national differences that prevents people from living in fraternal harmony and friendship and that causes fratricidal warfare between people of diverse backgrounds. Socialism alone can bring real peace and friendship among the masses of people by removing the conditions of insecurity that surround the working people everywhere under capitalism crises of overproduction, unemployment, homelessness, destitution, poverty and war. The problem can be solved only by proletarian revolution. 
through the seizure of state power by the proletariat and, by means of this, the transformation of the socialized means of production into public property and organizing socialized production on the basis of a predetermined plan and thus lay the basis for an unbroken, constantly accelerated development of the productive forces, and therewith for a practically unlimited increase of production itself. To accomplish this universal act of emancipation is the historical mission of the modern proletariat. To thoroughly comprasterisk critical remarks on the national question by V. I. Lenin, December, 1913, Collected Works, Vol. 20, 35p. F. Engels, Anti During, 1877, Moscow, 1954, p. 387. 68 Capitalism and Immigration Hend the Historical Conditions and Thus the Very Nature of This Act to impart to the now-oppressed proletarian class a full knowledge of the conditions and of the meaning of the momentous act it is called upon to accomplish this is the task of the theoretical expression of the proletarian movement, scientific socialism. Asterisk immigration, productivity growth, imports, outsourcing besides, the question of immigration cannot be considered in isolation from technological change growth in productivity, export of capital, outsourcing and the growth of cheap imports. In all the imperialist countries, there are varying degrees of clamor against all or some of these phenomena, which are inextricable from capitalism in general and imperialism in particular. One of the principal characteristics of imperialism is the export of capital. This is because of the emergence of the monopolist position of a few very rich countries, in which the accumulation of capital has reached gigantic proportions, giving rise to an enormous superabundance of capital. The necessity for exporting capital arises from the fact that in a few countries capitalism has become overripe and capital cannot find a field for profitable investment. Hence the need to export this surplus of capital. Doubtless, there would be no question of surplus of capital if capitalism could raise the living standards of the masses an argument all too frequently deployed by the petty bourgeois critics of Asterisk Gibbard, p. 391. V. I. Lenin, Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, 60 p. 69 CPGBML Capitalism But capitalism would not be capitalism if it did such things. Imperialism is in the business of making the maximum profit. It therefore exports surplus capital to places where an opportunity for making such a profit presents itself. Since Lenin's day, the export of capital has accelerated enormously especially during the past three decades. In the 13 years between 1983 and 1995, foreign direct investment, FDI, grew five times faster than trade and ten times faster than world output. Asterisk whereas FDI stood at $225 billion in 1990, it shot up to $464 billion in 1997 and topped $1,000 billion in 2000. Of these colossal sums, Three quarters are accounted for by flows between imperialist countries these flows almost entirely going towards mergers and acquisitions, M&A, 
while a quarter is exported to developing countries. The importance of the latter as an avenue for imperialist export of capital, and thus for enhancing the latter's profitability, may be judged from the fact that FDI flows into the developing countries, while running during the second half of the 1980s at an annual average rate of $15 billion rose to a peak level of $241 billion by 1996. Following the turmoil in Asia in 1997, FDI flows into the developing countries fell sharply to about $150 billion in 1997, but have recovered since then and stood at $233 billion at the end of 2004. Between 1980 and 1996, Global FDI stock rose from 10% to 21% of global GDP, while the share of trade in the global GDP remained broadly constant, thus proving that global integration is being accelerated more through investment, i.e., export of capital, than trade, i.e., export of commodities. Asterisk the Economist, the 24th of June, 1995. Financial Times, the 30th of September, 2005. Financial Times, the 4th of September, 1998. 70 Capitalism and Immigration in 1997. The accumulated stock of FDI was estimated to stand at $3,500 billion, more than twice the sum of $1,700 billion it was in 1990. 90% of it accounted for by multinational companies, MNCs, from the rich imperialist countries and 69% from just five usual imperialist countries, namely, the USA, Britain, Germany, France and Japan. Two-thirds of the FDI to developing countries goes to just a handful of them. China alone receives a quarter of the annual outflows on average being the recipient of $50 billion a year. In the 20 years to September, 2004, China alone received $500 billion in FDI, all because of the abundance of cheap labor. That in turn has fueled an export engine that in 2003 stacked up a $124 billion trade surplus with the USA. This figure climbed to $202 billion in 2005. China's foreign exchange reserves at the end of 2005 stood at $800 billion and are increasing at the rate of $200 billion a year. Capital is exported to the developing countries, for there, while capital is scarce, wages are low, land and raw materials cheap labor regulation flexible and tax benefits high all making for very high profits. In the imperialist countries, approximately 70% of the costs of a company come from labor and 30% from capital. The situation in countries such as China and India is diametrically the opposite. Their capital is expensive and labor cheap. Hence the export of capital and jobs from the imperialist countries to the developing countries. Asterisk large chunks of manufacturing have been transferred by all the imperialist countries to the low-cost developing countries, especially since the 1980s. 
This trend is now being extended into skilled office occupations it is a kind of hollowing out not faced before. Forrester, a research body, has stated that 3.3 million U.S. business processing jobs will go offshore by asterisk Financial Times, the 27th of September, 2004. 71 CPGBML 2015, joining the 400,000 already gone, while a Berkeley University estimate puts the loss of white-collar jobs at 14 million. Gartha, another consultant, predicted in March, 2004 that up to 25% of traditional IT jobs will be relocated from the developed, imperialist to the developing countries by 2010 a scenario not too unlikely in view of the fact that job losses will no longer be confined to call centers, an area which has courted much controversy recently, as countries such as India are likely to move up the value curve into areas such as newspaper subadditing, law, accountancy, design, engineering, tax, consultancy and financial services. Half of all European companies plan to move more services offshore. Presently, UK companies account for 61% of European service jobs shifted offshore, followed by Germany and the Benelux countries, Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, with 14% each. According to Forrester Research, 1.2 million European IT and service jobs will move offshore by 2015 nearly three-quarters of these from the UK. Developed countries that fail to relocate these jobs abroad, says Forrester, will simply be left behind and become far less competitive. On the opposite side, the headcount at Indian call centres quadrupled in the three years to September 2004 to more than 350,000 and has been rising. India turns out 2.5 million English-speaking graduates a year. As such, it provides a vast reservoir of competent but cheap labor, which lures companies in Europe and America to relocate their back-office jobs there. Not just Bangalore and Hyderabad, but many other towns are becoming centers for such relocated activity. Be it said in passing that India has more than 50 towns with a population of 500,000 or more. While causing the loss of jobs in Europe, America and Japan, and enabling large corporations to make huge profits, offshoring brings, as do cheap imports, real benefits to consumers 72 capitalism and immigration through the cheapening of goods and services. Besides, it must not be forgotten that Britain and the USA are themselves popular offshoring destinations. In 2002, they, the US and UK, were the two largest exporters of commercial services. Britain has a growing trade surplus in business services, including research and development, advertising and legal activities. All the same, it is undoubtedly the case that offshoring, outsourcing, along with cheap imports and capital exports, is a source of job losses and lowering levels of pay in the imperialist countries. Large though the job losses are through outsourcing, cheap imports and capital exports, they are as nothing compared with the job losses in the imperialist countries through routine rounds of savage restructuring and increases in productivity.
For instance, in the USA, output per hour in the non-farm business sector rose at a rate of 4% in the three years from 2001-03 inclusive, while the economy grew at a little over 2%. The resulting fall in employment was inevitable. The decline in manufacturing employment, at 2.63 million between March 2001 and January 2004, was higher than in the entire economy, at just 2.35 million. By January 2004, employment in manufacturing was 17% below that in June 2000. During this period, the cause of job losses was a 17% increase in output per worker, while the output fell by a mere 3%. The USA today produces twice as many manufacturers as it did two decades ago and with even fewer workers. Information technology decimated the jobs of armies of clerks, replacing them with educated and relatively better paid workers. It is reliably estimated that between 7 and 8%, 7 to 8 million, of U.S. private jobs are lost every quarter. Attacking the cheap imports of goods and services is no more sensible than the export of capital and rises in productivity. Since rising productivity is a far greater source of job losses under capitalism than cheap imports, why is there not 73 CPGBML such a hue and cry against productivity growth? Writing in the Financial Times of the 25th of February, 2004, Martin Wolf answers this question thus, The only relevant difference between productivity and trade is the all-too-visible involvement of foreigners, who do not have votes. They make wonderful scapegoats for unscrupulous politicians. No wonder, then, that in the USA, as a result of the workings of all these factors, Corporate profits were now taking a higher share of the growth in national income than employee compensation for the first time since the Second World War, while the real wages of those in work have started to fall behind inflation. Asterisk prolonged weakness in the labor market has left the nation with over a million fewer jobs than when the recession began, 2000. This is a worse position, in terms of recouping lost jobs than any business cycle since the 1930s. An outmoded system anti-immigration hysteria, expressed in Thatcher's words about our country being swamped by immigrants and asylum seek asterisk information in the preceding paragraphs is drawn from the Financial Times of the 12th of February, 2004, the 25th of February, 2004, the 27th of September, 2004 and Sunday Times. 1 February 2004 Economic Policy Institute, The State of Working America 2004 forward slash 2005, Washington DC, 2004 74 Capitalism and Immigration as, is often countered by what passes for the left in Britain with statistics showing immigrants to be only a small portion of the population and that Britain is not merely a recipient of immigrants but also a source of emigration. However unwittingly, those who play this numbers game risk making a fatal concession to capitalism by unjustifiably linking immigration and social problems, such as poverty, homelessness, 
unemployment and deteriorating social services. It is difficult to see what possible connection there can be between immigration and the wholesale decimation of the UK's car, steel, shipbuilding, textile and mining industries, the destruction of jobs in banks and Britain's docks. The truth is that it is capitalism, not foreign workers, that creates unemployment, and it alone is the source of inadequate housing, under-provision of education and healthcare, derisory pensions for most retired people, a run-down transport system, and so forth. There is no shortage of resources. The only problem is the continued existence of a historically outmoded system of production that is incapable of pressing those resources into service unless it can make a profit. In capitalistic society the means of production can only function when they have undergone a preliminary transformation into capital, into the means of exploiting human labor power. The necessity of this transformation into capital of the means of production and subsistence stands like a ghost between these and the laborers. It alone prevents the coming together of the material and personal levers of production, it alone forbids the means of production to function, the workers to work and live. Asterisk under this system of organized robbery, destitution and asterisk F. Engels, Antidurring, 1877, Moscow. 1954, P383. 75CPGBML homelessness go hand in hand with an abundance of material and human resources, hunger and want sit cheek by jowl with abundance and overproduction. Capitalism is characterized by accumulation of wealth at one pole, and, accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality and mental degradation at the opposite pole, i.e., on the side of the class that produces its own product in the form of capital. Asterisk the absurdity of this system is particularly revealed in its lurid light during periods of economic crisis, during which commerce is at a standstill, the markets are glutted, products accumulate, as multitudinous as they are. Unsaleable, hard cash disappears, credit vanishes, factories are closed. The mass of the workers are in want of the means of subsistence, because they have produced too much of the means of subsistence. In view of the above, scapegoating immigrants is a crude, yet very successful, attempt to blame the worst victims of capitalism and divert attention from the latter's responsibility for all the economic and social ills of present-day society. Workers who fall for this bait effectively become, whether they will it or not, accomplices and tools of the foreign and domestic policy of their imperialist ruling class, which, in an endeavor to maintain imperialist domination of the oppressed nations, violently intrudes into the latter's lives through predatory wars and imperialist-inspired civil strife. And when the victims of this super-exploitation, war and occupation, which are the driving forces behind periodic waves of immigration, manage to escape their miserable lot by reaching the centers of imperialism, they are vilified as scroungers asterisk K marks, Capital, Volume 1, 1867, Moscow, 1954, P645, Our Emphasis. F. Engels, Opsit, P381.
76 Capitalism and Immigration and Blamed at the Same Time for Stealing Jobs from Local Workers This horrible and racist treatment of the foreign workers in Britain and other imperialist countries is merely a reflection, and an extension, of the foreign policy of imperialism Imperialism's violent interference in the countries of origin of the immigrants followed by draconian legislation against, and ill-treatment and super-exploitation of, its luckless victims. Iraq, Afghanistan, the Balkans, the Lakes region of Africa, Somalia and Sierra Leone, which over the past 15 years have been a major source of emigration into the imperialist countries, furnish excellent proof of this our assertion. The foreign and domestic policy of imperialism are inextricably linked and the one cannot be arbitrarily separated from the other. They are two sides of the self-same policy of imperialist plunder and oppression one abroad and the other at home. Since modern-day racism is a product of the colonialist and imperialist system, an ideological outgrowth of the colonial plunder and imperialist super-exploitation of the vast majority of the people of Asia, Africa and Latin America by a handful of exceptionally rich and powerful states, it is only natural that this division between the oppressor and oppressed nations finds its reflection in racist legislation and the ill-treatment of foreign workers within the imperialist countries. Racism in the imperialist countries is merely a reflection of the division between oppressing and oppressed nations a duplication in a somewhat altered form of imperialist oppression abroad. Racism is at the heart of the immigration policy of imperialism. Imperialism needs foreign labor and imports it at will. Immigration legislation is not aimed at excluding altogether foreign workers, nor is it able to do so. It is used by the ruling class for two purposes. First, to attempt to regulate the reserve army of labor strict during periods of rising unemployment and relaxed in periods of heightened economic activity. Second, to divide and weaken the working class movement. 77 CPGBML in an effort to prevent resistance on the part of the working class against imperialist plunder, robbery and predatory wars abroad, and exploitation at home, and thus to divide and weaken the working class movement, imperialism resorts to racism and immigration legislation, with its unstated but clear message that foreign workers, especially from certain parts of the world with particular religious affiliations or pigmentation of skin, are not welcome and that they are to blame. For every social and economic evil attendant upon life under the conditions of capitalism, the working class in the imperialist countries falls prey to imperialist propaganda for, without exception, the leadership of the working class movement in these countries is in the hands of the upper stratum, the labor aristocracy, who are bribed by imperialism in a thousand different ways, direct and indirect, overt and covert. This labor aristocracy, Philistine in their mode of life, in the size of their earnings and in their entire outlook is the principal social prop of the bourgeoisie. For they are the real agents of the bourgeoisie in the working class movement, the labor of tenants of the capitalist class, real vehicles of reformism and chauvinism. In the civil war between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie they inevitably, and in no small number take the side of the bourgeoisie, 
the Versal lease against the communards. Asterisk in Britain, this has been the case since the defeat of the Chartist movement in the middle of the 19th century. The formation of the Labour Party in 1900, originally known as the Labour Representation Committee but called the Labour Party from 1906, gave political expression to this stratum, whose in asterisk vi Lenin, preface to the French and German editions of imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, October, 1921. 78 Capitalism and Immigration Terrorists It has always defended. As these interests cannot be defended without defending imperialism, the Labour Party has always been prepared to be a willing servant of British imperialism. In view of this, the struggle of the proletariat against racism and for working class unity and socialism is inextricably linked with the struggle against social democracy and opportunism. Lenin's stance towards the end of 1913 Lenin had the opportunity to examine the question of immigration. In his remarkable article Capitalism and Workers' Immigration, he makes some truly penetrating observations, which have a bearing on the present-day controversies on this issue. It is therefore worth our while bringing Lenin's analysis to the notice of the proletariat, in Britain and in other imperialist countries, in the following slightly summarized version. Capitalism has given rise to a special form of migration. The rapidly developing industrial countries attract workers from the backward countries through a combination of higher wages in the advanced capitalist countries and destitution in the backward countries. There can be no doubt that dire poverty alone compels people to abandon their native land and that capitalists exploit the immigrant workers in the most shameless manner. Asterisk Lenin regarded this phenomenon, whereby advanced capitalism literally drags millions of workers into its orbit, as very progressive indeed, for through this forcible process it asterisk capitalism and workers' immigration by V.I. Lenin, October, 1913, Collected Works, Vol. 19, P454. 79 CPGBML tears them out of the backwards in which they live, makes them participants in the world historical movement and brings them face to face with the powerful, united, international class of factory owners. He went on to say that only reactionaries can shut their eyes to the progressive significance of this modern migration of nations. Which draws the masses of the working people of the whole world, into the arena of class struggle by, breaking down the musty, fusty habits of local life, breaking down national barriers and prejudices, uniting workers from all countries in huge factories and mines in America, Germany, and so forth. At that time, as indeed today, the USA was the largest single importer of foreign workers. Lenin looked at the immigration figures for America over a period of nine decades and noted the important change in the country of origin of emigrants to that country, see Table 1. He commented that, whereas up to 1880 the overwhelming majority of the workers emigrating to the USA came from the old civilized countries of Europe, such as Great Britain, Germany and partly Sweden, and that even up to 1890, Britain and Germany supplied in excess of half of the total immigrants, from 1880 onwards, 
there took place an incredibly rapid rise in new immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, from Austria, Italy and Russia. He produced figures, Table 2, for the number of people emigrating from the last mentioned three countries to the USA. Lenin greeted these figures, and the phenomena they represented, with his characteristic youthful joy. Thus, the most backward countries in the old world, those that more than any other retained survivals of feudalism in every 80 capitalism and immigration branch of social life, are, as it were, undergoing compulsory training in civilization. American capitalism is tearing millions of workers of backward Eastern Europe, including Russia, which in 1891-1900 provided 594,000 immigrants and in 1900-09, 1,410,000, out of their semi-feudal conditions and is putting them in the ranks of the advanced, international army of the proletariat. Table 1 Immigration Figures for the USA Over Nine Decades, Lenin 1821 to 1831 to 4491 to 41 to 51 and 71 to 82 million 1881 to 94 million 1891 to 1903,703,900-097,210,000, 9 years, table 2 numbers of people emigrating from Austria, Italy and Russia to the US, Lenin. 1871 to 8281 to 1881 to 1991-1947,000, nine years. 81 CPGBML relying on our which is extremely illuminating. Book. Immigration and Labor, which had only just appeared then in English, he said that the number of emigrants to the USA increased specially after the 1905 revolution, the figures being, 1905 1 million, 1906 1 million 260,000, 1907 1 million 400,000, 1908 and 1909 1,900,000 each. This large movement of Russian workers to the USA had had a beneficial effect on the American working class movement and American capitalism alike. As to the former, workers who had participated in various strikes in Russia introduced into America the bolder and more aggressive spirit of the mass strike. As for American capitalism, it could only benefit from this movement of workers from backward countries to the USA. Russia is lagging farther and farther behind, losing some of her best workers to foreign countries, America is advancing more and more rapidly, taking the most vigorous and able-bodied sections of the working population of the whole world. Turning to Germany, 
Lenin said that she was more or less keeping pace with the U.S. in the import of foreign workers and changing from a country which released workers into one that attracts them from foreign countries. While the number of German emigrants to the USA declined sharply between 1890 and 1909, that of foreign workers in 82 capitalism and immigration Germany registered a significant increase. Analyzing the figures relating to foreign workers in Germany, and dividing them according to occupation and their country of origin, Lenin concluded that the more backward the country the larger is the number of unskilled laborers it supplies. The advanced nations seize, as it were, the best paid occupations for themselves and leave the semi-barbarian countries the worst paid occupations. While six-tenths of Austrian immigrants in Germany and eight-tenths of immigrants from other countries in Europe were industrial workers, a mere one-tenth of the workers from Russia, then the most backward country in Europe, were industrial workers the remaining nine-tenths being employed in German agriculture. Thus, Russia is punished everywhere and in everything for her backwardness. But, he added, alluding to the virile revolutionary movement of the Russian proletariat, it is the workers of Russia who are more than any others bursting out of this state of backwardness and barbarism, more than others combating these delightful features of their native land, and more closely than any others uniting with the workers of all countries into a single international force for emancipation. In the face of bourgeois attempts at dividing and weakening the working class movement by pitting workers of one nation against those of another, and recognizing the inevitability and the progressive nature of the breakdown of all the narrow national barriers by capitalism, the proletariat has but one option 83 CPGBML to unite under the banner of proletarian internationalism and the joint fight of the workers of all nationalities for socialism and communism through the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism. The bourgeoisie incites the workers of one nation against those of another in the endeavor to keep them disunited. Class-conscious workers Realizing that the breakdown of all the national barriers by capitalism is inevitable and progressive, are trying to help to enlighten and organize their fellow workers from the backward countries. Asterisk conclusions in the light of the foregoing, we draw the following conclusions. One systematic and large-scale migration is unique to capitalism. Two immigration is an integral part of the European landscape and Europe is a continent of immigrants the Americas and Australasia even more so. 3. Only dire poverty or persecution forces people to leave their native lands. 4. Imperialist predatory wars against oppressed people and imperialist-inspired civil strife force millions of people to seek asylum abroad, including in the heartlands of imperialism. 5. There is a direct link between immigration and the availability of jobs in the country of origin and destination of immigrants respectively, and the operation of the labor asterisk Ibad, P456. 84 Capitalism and immigration market is capable of regulating the flow of immigration. 6 Immigration laws enacted by the imperialist countries are inherently racist and intended to divide and weaken the working class movement. 7. By creating the distinction between legal and illegal immigrants, these laws are a continuing incitement to racism, 
setting the indigenous workers upon the newly arrived foreigners. 8. Illegal immigration is a source of huge enrichment to the bourgeoisie, while at the same time serving as a scapegoat for the ills of capitalism and as an instrument for sowing divisions within the working class movement. 9. There is an enduring link between state and unofficial racism, as well as the racism of the front bench and the back benches in the parliaments of the imperialist countries. 10. Unemployment, poverty, homelessness, run-down social services, deteriorating infrastructure, public health and education, are not the fault of the workers indigenous or foreign but entirely due to the operations of capitalism which has long been an outmoded system that needs to have funeral rites performed on it and be given a decent burial. 11. Immigration is not only inevitable under capitalism but also progressive, and only reactionaries can shut their eyes to the progressive significance of this modern migration of nations, which draws the masses of working people of the whole world into the arena of class struggle by breaking down national barriers and prejudices uniting workers from all countries in huge workplaces in America, Europe and so forth. 12. And finally, while the bourgeoisie incites the workers of one nation against those of another in order to disunite 85 CPGBML and weaken the entire working class, for their part, class-conscious workers, realizing that the breakdown of all the national barriers by capitalism is inevitable and progressive must do their best to help to enlighten and organize their fellow workers from the backward countries. Harple Bra London, April, 2006 86 Capitalism and Immigration CPGBML Congress calls for an end to immigration control for at the CPGBML's 2008 Congress. Delegates unanimously adopted a new policy on immigration and vowed to take the party's analysis into the working class movement as a counter to the racist hysteria and anti-immigrant scapegoating that is being whipped up ever higher as the capitalist crisis deepens. I would like to thank the party for opening up this debate as it has done. Unfortunately for us all, the issue of immigration remains the Achilles heel of our movement just as it was in Marx's day, when he and Engels noted that the antagonism between Irish and English workers in England was the key to the impotence of the English working class movement, despite the latter's high level of organization. If we are serious about becoming the type of party that is capable of leading a revolutionary struggle to overthrow British imperialism, it is imperative that our party members are able to see clearly on this the most divisive of issues, and are confident in thoroughly refuting all the bourgeois prejudices that have been so carefully inculcated in our minds via school, literature, the media, etc. 87 CPGBML One of the main prejudices that seems to dog the left-wing movement is that, since immigration helps capitalists make profits, by ensuring a steady supply of cheap labor and keeping wages down then progressive people ought automatically to be opposed to the free movement of labor under capitalism. This argument seems to be given further strength by the fact that, under socialism, a country might well feel the need to apply border controls. This second point, however, is a red herring. What a workers' government might need to do under particular conditions, i.e., 
of capitalist encirclement, has no relevance to what workers demand under conditions of capitalism. For example, we would not demand unemployment benefits for healthy people under socialism, because we know they would have ample opportunity to work. The same logic cannot be applied to the capitalist system, however, since capitalism denies the right to work to huge numbers of workers. If we return to the main point, i.e., that immigration is good for capitalism, we find a similar sort of confusion. To argue that anything that is good for capitalism must automatically be opposed by workers is to oversimplify and confuse the matter. To take the most basic example, it is only through employing workers that capitalists can make profits through the extraction of surplus value, should we therefore call for total unemployment in order to starve capitalists of their profits. Seen in this light, the argument becomes absurd. Of course, we call for full employment, despite the fact that, under the conditions of capitalism, Employment means wage slavery for those employed and the further accumulation of profits and power to the employers. There are other examples of the double-edged sword of progress under conditions of capitalism. The introduction of universal education, for example, was a great benefit for workers, and one that communists fully supported and fought for. 88 Capitalism and Immigration Nevertheless under conditions of capitalism, the bourgeoisie has found ways to turn this step forward to its advantage, injecting bourgeois philosophy and prejudices into every subject, from history to art to science. Does this mean we should fight for the abolition of education in order that workers' minds might not be so tainted? Of course not. Educated workers no matter how inferior the education they receive by socialist standards, are in a much better position to make a scientific analysis of the world than those who have received no education and are therefore prey to all manner of superstition. Of course, no matter how good our education, under capitalist conditions, we cannot help but be imbued with bourgeois prejudice but an educated mind has more chance of combating these than an uneducated one and being able to read is a basic prerequisite for accessing the science of Marxism-Leninism. Education, women's emancipation, employment, the vote these seemingly progressive steps are all stunted and twisted benefits to workers under the conditions of capitalism, limited in scope, tainted in execution and often serving to embellish illusions of bourgeois freedom. They will only blossom to complete and unfettered maturity once we have attained a higher level of society. Nevertheless, we fight for them for the simple reason that, even in their limited, bourgeois form, they are steps forward that help to create the conditions in which workers will be able to organize themselves to throw off the shackles of capitalist society. The same is true of unfettered immigration. Under conditions of capitalism, mass migration can no more be stopped than can wage slavery itself. From the very earliest days of capitalist society, people found themselves forced to move from the countryside to the towns in order to find work and support their families. In present-day Britain, 
many people 89 CPGBML are forced to leave their homes in the regions and look for work in London and the South East. Should workers demand a halt to all this kind of migration? Where would we draw the lines? Should there be border controls at the edge of every county? Of every town? Again, seen in this light, the argument seems absurd, yet there is essentially no difference between this kind of migration and the international kind. In both cases, people are forced to move to find work. In both cases, contradictions arise between incoming and local populaces. In both cases, capitalism benefits from the free movement of labor. As soon as capitalism went global, so did its contradictions. Conditions of life under imperialism force many people all over the world to head from the global hinterlands to the centers of imperialism in order to support their families. Since we cannot stop immigration under conditions of capitalism, what we should instead turn our attention to is the effect such immigration has on our movement, on workers' struggles for pay and conditions under capitalism, and on the struggle for socialism. Anti-immigrant legislation and propaganda all serve to whip up racist hysteria among working people, keeping them divided and impotent. This racism is still the most important weapon in the hands of the bourgeoisie, and should therefore be the main target of the working class movement. Our focus should therefore be on calling for the abolition of immigration controls as a progressive step that would help to eradicate the poisonous racism that hampers our movement, and would also bring in many more workers to both the trade union and the revolutionary movements, and, incidentally, workers who bring with them much that is revolutionary, having suffered at the sharp end of the imperialist system. The best way to stop illegal immigrants from lowering conditions and wages for British workers, for example, is to fight for the 90 capitalism and immigration removal of their illegal status as the first step to bringing them into the union's ETC and demanding decent pay and conditions for all. As to arguments that incoming migrants put an intolerable strain on the welfare system, and that since our taxes pay for them, it is unfair for people to come from abroad and take advantage, these are myths put about by bourgeois media and politicians to fuel anti-immigrant racism. It is well known to our party members that the social provision that was provided in all Western imperialist countries after the Second World War was the product of a very special set of circumstances, most particularly, the threat of revolution following the devastation of Europe and the victories of, and example set by, the workers' government of the USSR. It is not the level of immigration but the decline in fortunes, albeit temporary of the world anti-imperialist movement that has led Western governments to feel confident in attacking the level of social provision. Only a strong working class movement will have the power to reverse that trend. And, ultimately, only a working class revolution will make such provision a permanent, as opposed to a temporary, feature of life for working people. That is the message we should be taking to working people. Capitalism will never put their interests first, and will only provide the minimum that it can get away with at any particular time.
Only socialism will put the needs of the people first and use society's resources to meet those needs. Moreover, social provision in the West housing, healthcare, education, unemployment benefit etc. has ultimately been paid for out of imperialist super profits. Just because a small part of these super profits has found its way into the pay packets of ordinary workers and then been used, via taxation, to make various kinds of social provision, this does not change the fact that the ultimate source of the income is not only the hard work of British workers but also the even harder work of the 91 CPGBML super-exploited peoples of the rest of the world. So how can we accuse these people of taking advantage if they find themselves forced to come here to try and make a living? Comrades, I move that we adopt the text proposed in the resolution into our party program and take our analysis into the movement in order that we can get on with the vital work of countering the racist lies and dispelling the bourgeois prejudices that cripple our movement and stand in the way of the revolutionary task we have set ourselves that of smashing British imperialism. Jyoti Bra London, July, 2008 92 Capitalism and Immigration Immigration Resolution unanimously adopted this Congress notes, one that the issue of immigration remains the Achilles heel of our movement, just as it was in Marx's day, when he and Engels noted that the antagonism between Irish and English workers in England was the key to the impotence of the English working class movement. Despite the latter's high level of organization, to the wide-ranging and cumridly debate that has taken place since the last party congress on the issue of immigration. This congress believes, one that if we are serious about becoming the type of party that is capable of leading a revolutionary struggle to overthrow British imperialism, it is imperative that our party members are able to see clearly on this, the most divisive of issues and are confident in thoroughly refuting all the bourgeois prejudices that have been so carefully inculcated in our 93 CPGBML minds via school, literature, the media etc., to that as the capitalist crisis of overproduction deepens and conditions for British workers grow worse, the ruling class will undoubtedly attempt to whip up racism and anti-immigrant hysteria to an even higher pitch. 3 that our party must take a very clear position on immigration if it is to be in a position to refute the bourgeois propaganda onslaught and help British workers to do the same, for that the world situation makes this an urgent task for our party, and that failing to adopt a position now could seriously hamper our party's work over the next two years. This Congress therefore resolves to adopt the following into the CPGBML's party program. This party firmly believes that immigration is not the cause of the ills of the working class in Britain, which are solely the result of the failings of the capitalist system. Immigration and asylum legislation and controls under capitalism have only one real goal, the division of the working class along racial lines thus fatally weakening that class's ability to organize itself and to wage a revolutionary struggle for the overthrow of imperialism. These controls have the further effect of creating an army of illegal immigrant workers, prey to super-exploitation and living in dire conditions as an underclass, outside the system, 
afraid to organize and exercising a downward pull on the wages and conditions of all workers. The scourge of racism, along with all other ills of capitalism, will only be finally abolished after the successful overthrow of imperialism. But since immigration can no more be abolished under capitalism than can wage slavery, our call should not be 94 capitalism and immigration for the further control and scapegoating of immigrants, but the abolition of all border controls, as part of the wider fight to uproot racism from the working class movement and build unity among workers in Britain, so strengthening the fight for communism. 95 CPGBML 96 Capitalism and Immigration Black and White, Unite and Fight, 5 Racism is built into the system of exploitation, and will not be abolished until that system is replaced by socialism. We live in a society that is governed by a tiny minority. According to an Oxfam report, just 80 multibillionaires control more than half the world's wealth which gives them the power to dictate to governments and essentially to control the whole of the capitalist world. This minority got rich, and keeps getting richer, by exploiting the labor power of the vast majority of humanity. Destroying workers' power in order to keep the insanely unequal imperialist system in place and to preserve their tremendous wealth and power against the interests of the vast masses, the minority ruling class has become very experienced at dividing working people against one another. Under capitalism, even quite privileged workers are worse off than they will ultimately be under socialism, and all of us are totally lacking in the security of knowing we have such basic 97 CPGBML necessities as jobs, homes, healthcare, education and pensions that are guaranteed for life. Racism is one of the main weapons of our rulers against all of us. It is a primary means of redirecting the anger and frustration that should be focused on the unjust capitalist system at our fellow workers. The job of bourgeois political parties is to protect the interests of the exploiting class. This involves not only turning a blind eye to the pollution of the planet and sending working-class soldiers off to die in predatory wars to control the world's resources and markets, but also forcing down as far as possible the wages workers receive to maintain themselves and their families. The drive for a cheaper workforce is what is motivating the ongoing cuts to our social housing, healthcare, education provision, welfare safety net and all the other services that form a part of our social wage. It is what led to the attacks on trade union rights and pension schemes. And it also leads to the export of capital whereby British capitalists close down enterprises in this country in order to produce more cheaply abroad, where workers receive far less both directly in wages and indirectly in benefits and services, thus boosting their profits enormously but depriving millions of workers in Britain of our traditional occupations and decimating our local communities. All this is done in the interests of maintaining profits, especially now in a time of crisis, when profits are harder to come by, so the role of capitalist politicians and media is to make sure that the blame for the ill effects is laid not on capitalism, which causes these problems but on some scapegoated minority section of the working class, immigrants or asylum seekers, 
which is itself suffering from the attack on living standards. That is why all bourgeois political parties in this country, especially the five main ones Labour, LibDEM, UKIP, SNP and Tory have to be racist. Part of their role is to make sure that workers from different communities are encouraged to deride each other's traditions and religious beliefs implementing a 98 capitalism and immigration strategy of divide and rule that has been used by ruling minority classes for centuries. Instead of recognizing that all workers are our class brothers and sisters, the well-paid hirelings of the bourgeoisie do all in their power to encourage us to identify with our own exploiters because of shared skin color, language, culture and forward slash or religious affiliation. Racial and national prejudices are deliberately renewed and reinforced by capitalism's servants in Westminster and warping on a daily basis. Only this explains why racism in capitalist society cannot simply be educated away. For every attempt by ordinary people to prove that they can get on perfectly well, and that racism is unfounded and redundant, there are a thousand stories in the ruling class-controlled corporate media aimed at stirring up racial tension and sowing distrust in the minds of workers. Even the better-off white workers in the imperialist heartlands suffer as a result of racism. They suffer because our divided class is unable to organize an effective fight to replace this racist, warmongering system with a socialist society in which we can live a secure, meaningful, cultured and dignified life, free from all forms of discrimination, from poverty and from war. That is why we say that racism is a class issue and not simply a problem for those whose skin color or ethnic background leads to them being directly victimized. Racism and immigration as communists, we are anti-racist not only because racism is morally and scientifically unjustifiable, but also because of racism's effect in dividing and weakening the workers' struggle for emancipation, freedom. Population migration has been a feature of human life as long as we have existed as a species, and it has reached its apex under imperialism where forced 99 CPGBML and voluntary movements of people have reached seismic proportions. Under conditions of capitalism, mass migration can no more be stopped than can wage slavery itself. From the very earliest days of capitalist society, people found themselves forced to move from the countryside to the towns in order to find work and support their families. In present-day Britain, Many people are forced to leave their homes in other parts of the country and look for work in London and the southeast. Should workers demand a halt to all this kind of migration? Where would we draw the lines? Should there be border controls at the edge of every county? Of every town? Seen in this light, the argument seems absurd. Yet there is essentially no difference between this kind of migration and the international kind. In both cases, people are forced to move to make a living. In both cases, contradictions arise between incoming and local populaces. In both cases, capitalism benefits from the free movement of labor. Propelled by our rulers' quest to expand their markets and to control vital sources of raw materials, huge numbers of surplus, to the capitalists at home, 
workers were formerly sent as settlers to parts of the world where indigenous populations were ill-equipped to repulse them, for example, the whole of the Americas, Australia and New Zealand. There, they were rewarded with land and a privileged status in return for massacring native peoples and clearing them off the land and thus opening the way for the establishment of large-scale capitalist farming and industry in their place. Other parts of the world, where the natives could not be so easily wiped out, were conquered and ruled by colonial administrations, backed up by the devastating industrial firepower of the imperialist war machines. Here, too, the best land was often turned over to cash crop farming for export, as in much of Africa and profits from extracting valuable raw materials 100 capitalism and immigration were repatriated to banks and shareholders in London, Paris, New York and Berlin, leaving the peoples in the countries of origin to grow poorer and poorer as the imperialist billionaires grew richer and richer. In India, formerly one of the richest countries in the world, the unfettered looting of gold and treasure by the British Raj, and its refusal to allow any investment in the subcontinent's formerly extensive network of irrigation canals, left the country a shadow of its former self, and its people prey to the regular and devastating famines that took the lives of hundreds of millions of innocent Indians. Of course, as soon as capitalism went global, so did its contradictions. Just as capitalist exploitation and concentration of wealth formally pushed peasants off the land and into the towns, so imperialist wars and economic super-exploitation all over the planet created wave upon wave of migration, as the new conditions of life forced many millions of workers to leave their homes in the oppressed countries and move to the centers of imperialism in the hope of being better able to feed their children. This objective reality renders all the more obscene the increasingly histrionic propaganda, not to mention the heightened repression, being directed at the desperate migrants, refugees and asylum seekers in the French town of Calais and in the Mediterranean Sea. At least eight migrants are known to have died in Calais in July alone, in the course of frantic attempts to reach the relative safety of Britain, whilst in the Mediterranean, in April. 950 African migrants perished in just a single boat sinking. Asterisk countless and nameless others perish at one point or another. Asterisk migrant deaths saw as Mediterranean Sea's worst tragedy in living memory. International Organize Action for Migration, the 19th of April, 2015. 101 CPGBML on their dangerous journeys. Their names may be unknown but we know what they wanted they wanted for themselves and their families what we as British workers want for our ourselves and our own families, a decent livelihood, healthcare, education and safety for their children, dignity, respect and some hope for the future. These are things that every worker, every person should enjoy as of right no matter their colour or where they hail from things we would all enjoy in abundance were it not for the expropriation of the wealth produced by urban and rural workers by the parasite classes of capitalists and landlords. And, in looking at the reasons why so many people are prepared to risk their very lives in the hope of realising such modest objectives in the heartlands of imperialism, 
we find them not only in several centuries of colonial super-exploitation and in continued neo-colonial pillage, but also in the ceaseless wars waged by our ruling class against those nations in Africa, the Middle East and elsewhere that stand up against imperialism and seek to pursue a development path that benefits their own people. Syria and Libya, for example, from where many of today's refugees hail, both once provided an advanced level of social welfare, Syria still struggles heroically to maintain this in the face of a vicious and relentless war on every front. Libya, which had the highest standard of living in Africa, with free education, free health care and virtually free housing, not only provided all this to its own people, but also to millions of migrant workers from throughout Africa and elsewhere. In destroying this beacon of hope and liberation, imperialism has also willfully unleashed a reign of terror waged by depraved death squads not just in Libya, but across a vast swathe of Africa, from Nigeria to Kenya. Falsely posing under a religious flag, these brutal militia are part of imperialism's strategy to once again destabilize, divide, rule and plunder. Whereas Libya once offered a congenial and welcoming home to millions of 102 capitalism and immigration African workers, this ruined country is now the main jumping of point for life and death attempts to cross the Med which, incidentally, is exactly what the late Colonel Gaddafi, murdered leader of the Libyan revolution, warned more than once would be the case, if the imperialist aggression prevailed. Yet capitalism's only answer to this terrible result of its racist wars is more racism and more war. The media may choose to give prominence to the calls by the demagogue Nigel Farage for the army to be deployed against our class brothers and sisters, our fellow workers, but in reality the stance of Labour and Tory politicians is not a jot better. The only real difference is that they have done far more than Farage by virtue of being or having recently been, in government to create this tragic situation in the first place. It is clear, therefore, that we cannot stop immigration under conditions of capitalism. And since that is so, we should instead turn our attention to the effect such immigration has on our movement on workers' struggles for pay and conditions under capitalism, and on the struggle for socialism. Racist justifications for colonial oppression and exploitation, along with anti-immigrant legislation and propaganda, all serve to whip up racist hysteria among working people, keeping us divided and impotent. Indeed, the stories are becoming more lurid and the scapegoating more blatant as the economic crisis of capitalism deepens and more workers are trying to find out who or what is to blame for the unending attacks on our jobs houses, pensions and public services. And as the condition of many workers under the onslaught of cuts and austerity is becoming more desperate by the day, the main political parties are all trying to distract our attention by engaging in a diversionary auction each one competing with the other in a bid to prove itself the most racist and the toughest on immigration. This is often justified as being what the people want but the 103 CPGBML truth is that most workers' beliefs about what needs to be done to sort out the economy and provide us with jobs, houses etc. are based on the lies we have read in the corporate media.
when we examine it more closely, public opinion itself turns out to be a set of unfounded prejudices that the capitalist state machine has painstakingly created and nurtured. Ample proof that changing the faces can't bring about a change in this system has been provided by the election of Barack Obama as President of the USA. Black and ethnic minority communities turned out en masse to vote for Mr. Obama, seeing in him the hope of a fairer and more equal society. But in the USA, as in Britain, the crisis is leading to an increase in racism, despite the presence of a black man in the White House. Racist murders by state forces in the U.S. are rising to epidemic proportions, huge numbers of young black men are festering in U.S. jails, and severe poverty among black and minority ethnic workers is rampant. Meanwhile, here in Britain, the ruling Conservative Party now has two prominent MPs of Pakistani origin, both of whom are being touted in the media as rising stars of British politics. Can we, as a result, expect to see a softening of the government's attitude towards dark-skinned Britons or a lessening in its drive to war? Quite the reverse. Sajid Javid, recently appointed as the Secretary of State for Business, Innovation and Skills, made headlines in 2014 when he jumped into the immigration debate to declare his support for all those who complain about the foreign ways of migrant communities. I think it's perfectly reasonable he said, for British people to say, look, if you're going to settle in Britain and make it your home, you should learn the language of the country and you should respect its laws and its culture. 104 Capitalism and Immigration Of course, he didn't mention that successive governments, including his own, have cut the funding that used to enable newly arrived workers to learn English for free classes that facilitated the very integration that politicians and media are blaming penniless refugees for failing to achieve, a move that has hit dependent women especially hard and left many of them extremely isolated. It also raises another bar to the success of their children, who will now learn English later and more slowly than they would otherwise have done and who will spend their childhoods hampered by their parents' lack of ability to navigate official systems or take part in wider social life. Javid, a former banker who has been puffed as a possible candidate for the title of Britain's first Asian Prime Minister, is also a strong supporter of the ruling class's plans to bomb Syria into submission, and is on record as declaring the fascistic imperialist proxy state of Israel to be a bastion of freedom and democracy in the Middle East and the only country in the region where he would like to bring up his children. Asterisk the many poisonous effects of racism on our class and our movement. Explain why communists call for the abolition of all immigration controls as a progressive step that would help to eradicate the catastrophic division that holds us back. Immigrants are not the enemy of British working people, British capitalism is. We therefore demand full citizenship rights for all people who live and forward slash or work in Britain. Classifying workers as illegal leaves them prey to the most extreme exploitation and abuse, and simultaneously turns them into weapons of the capitalists to depress the wages of all. 
the best way to stop illegal immigrants from lowering conditions and wages for British workers is to fight for the removal asterisk Muslim Tory MP, after Britain, Israel is best by Martin Bright, the Jewish Chronicle, the 13th of December, 2012. 105 CPGBML of their illegal status as the first step to bringing them into the unions and other workers' organizations so that we can demand decent pay and conditions for all. Such a step would bring in many more workers to both the trade union and the revolutionary movements, among them, incidentally, workers who bring with them much that is revolutionary, having suffered at the sharp end of the imperialist system. Asterisk as to arguments that incoming migrants put an intolerable strain on the welfare system, and that since our taxes pay for them, it is unfair for people to come from abroad and take advantage, these are more of the myths put about by bourgeois media and politicians to fuel anti-immigrant racism. It is a little talked of fact that the social provision that was provided in all the Western imperialist countries after the Second World War was the product of a very special set of circumstances most particularly, it was a response to the threat of revolution following the devastation of Europe and the victories of, and example set by, the workers' government of the USSR. The ruling classes of Europe were well aware that if they were not willing to grant substantial concessions and raise the living standards of workers, we were very likely to follow the example of our brothers and sisters in Eastern Europe and East Asia by pushing them aside and simply taking what we needed instead. The revolutionary sentiments of workers were bought off with temporary sops and we allowed ourselves to be lulled back to sleep with empty promises of a peaceful and gradual transition to socialism. We also allowed ourselves to turn a blind eye to the violent and ruthless suppression and exploitation of the colonies that went hand in hand with the establishment of the welfare state asterisk CPGBML Congress calls for an end to immigration control, this pamphlet, 86p. 106 Capitalism and Immigration and made a significant contribution in paying for our public services. Britain's post-war Labour government, so famous at home for establishing the NHS, is infamous abroad for its suppression of Indian, Greek and Malayan liberation movements and for sending British troops to support the US in devastating and dividing the newly independent Republic of Korea. Today, it is not the level of immigration but the decline in fortunes, albeit temporary, of the world communist and anti-imperialist movement that has led Western governments to feel confident in attacking our social provisions. Only a strong working class movement will have the power to reverse that trend. And, ultimately, only a working class revolution will make decent social facilities a permanent, as opposed to a temporary, feature of life for working people. The fact is that capitalism will never put our interests first, and will only provide the minimum that it can get away with at any particular time. Only socialism will put the needs of the people first and use society's resources to meet those needs. As stated above, social provision in the West housing, healthcare, education, Unemployment benefit ETC has ultimately been paid for out of imperialist super profits. 
just because a small part of these super profits has found its way into the pay packets of ordinary workers and then been used, via taxation, to provide various services, healthcare, education, housing, benefits, pensions etc., to workers, does not change the fact that the ultimate source of the income was not only the hard work of British workers but also the even harder work of the super-exploited peoples of the rest of the world. So how can we accuse people from those super-exploited countries, impoverished by the transfer of their country's wealth to the financial centres of imperialism, Wall Street, the City of London etc., of taking advantage if they find themselves forced to come here to try and make a living. We need to recognize that it is the bourgeoisie's insatiable 107 CPGBML urge for profit, not some other section of the working class, that is responsible for our problems. If we don't understand this, we can end up falling for the lies of openly fascistic hate-mongers who want to mobilize us against our own class to help save capitalism. Those who fall for BNP-type ravings are being turned into dupes of our rulers against their own class interests, and are in danger of finding themselves well and truly on the wrong side of the fight when the bourgeoisie decides, as it most certainly will, that it is in need of mass-scale violent repression to crush the inevitable threat of revolution at some point in the future. It is not only white British workers who are played for fools by the British bourgeoisie in this way. Non-whites and religious minorities, too, are often encouraged to keep themselves apart to avoid contamination by Western culture, or to organize themselves separately under the apparently progressive banner of black nationalism, which is founded on the insidious lie that all white people are congenitally racist and that white supremacy rather than the capitalist ruling class is the main enemy of ethnic minority workers. Racism and the police the ruling classes need to promote racism also explains why no amount of recruitment of black and brown people into the ranks of Her Majesty's Constabulary will change the fact that the police force is institutionally racist. Discrimination against ethnic minorities, along with the brutal oppression of the poorest and most disenfranchised people in our society, is not a question of a few rotten apples among our good old bobbies, but an essential part of the police's role in bourgeois society. As agents of the capitalist state, the police have to arrest a disproportionate number of black and Asian young men. In this 108 capitalism and immigration way, they justify all the racist rhetoric of our politicians and prostitutes and create the crime statistics that are in turn used to justify much of the media nonsense about the inherent criminality of young black men. If the ruling class stopped arresting and criminalizing these workers, it might have to start explaining just why it is that so many of them have failed to receive a proper education why so many are living in poverty and why so many are unemployed. A criminal record, like being expelled from school, can be used as proof that the individual concerned is at fault, and not the system. Stop and search statistics and the number of deaths in custody demonstrate the same disgracefully racist pattern as other aspects of the state control of workers. Between 1990 and 2014, 
there were 82 deaths of members of the ethnic minorities at the hands of the Metropolitan Police alone, and a further 63 in the rest of the country. Not a single one of these murders has resulted in the conviction of the police killers involved. Deaths in custody have been consistently higher for ethnic minorities than for white Britons across the country. Particularly shocking is the number of black people suffering from mental health problems who have died in police custody, often after having suffered disproportionate and wholly unnecessary violence. A host of recent developments and revelations have once again made it abundantly clear that institutional racism is rampant in Britain today, and that the repressive institutions of the bourgeois state do not serve the people. Practices such as cover-ups and corruption are routine part of the very logic of their operations, not the results of extraordinary actions by a few rogue agents. For example, it was revealed in 2014 that the Metropolitan Police had destroyed a vast cache of documents 11 years 109 CPGBML earlier connected to an ongoing corruption investigation. The papers destroyed included documents relating to a detective involved in the investigation of the murder of Stephen Lawrence in 1993. This disclosure came just weeks after a coroner's inquest ruled that the police murder of Mark Duggan on the streets of London in August 2011 was lawful despite the jury agreeing that Duggan was unarmed when he was shot. The two and a half years between Mark's murder and the inquest not only saw the usual attempts at cover-up and the giving of false evidence by the officers involved, but also a sustained media smear campaign against Mr. Duggan and his family. This is just one of the most high-profile cases, which needs to be understood in the context of the daily discrimination and harassment suffered by black and Asian communities at the hands of the British police. The response of Tottenham's Black Labour MP to the Duggan inquest's finding is also instructive. In a comment column for The Guardian, David Lammy, whilst making a nod to possible concerns about this institutionally racist finding, was most keen to stress that the process that led to this inquest conclusion should be respected and that the perceived lack of justice should not be allowed to permanently destroy workers' faith in the institutions of the state the courts, police etc. Mr Lamy concluded that public trust in the police has been shown to be fragile, and it will take time to rebuild following another setback. Yet it is imperative that it is rebuilt. Asterisk this is a perfect illustration of how our rulers work to coop asterisk Mark Duggan inquest. Questions must be answered before police and community relations can heal by Mark Duggan. The Guardian, the 8th of January, 2014. 110 Capitalism and Immigration Our Community Leaders rewarding them with comfortable careers in order that they will become part of the machinery of the state instead of leading their people's struggle against that state. This phenomenon is seen repeatedly across all our social movements, from the anti-racist and anti-war to the trade union and women's movements. To this end, whole structures of official anti-racist work have been created to provide such careers in which sincere activists gradually become pacified, diverted and cynical, 
focusing their attention on the vocabulary workers use when talking about each other's skin colors, for example, or on academic careers researching and writing papers no worker will ever read, while leaving the real props and drivers of racism in place and even reinforcing them, in the cases where part of their remit is the active promotion of black nationalism. Racism and war Another important reason for racism in an imperialist country is as a justification for the economic and military domination of countries in the oppressed world. If the people of the target countries are portrayed as being incapable of managing their own affairs, and their leaders as being inherently corrupt and dictatorial, our ruling class can present its resource-grabbing banditry as being motivated by pure altruism and its barbaric bombing campaigns as civilizing and liberating missions. This racism also serves the important purpose of helping to brainwash Britain's soldiers and potential soldiers by dehumanizing the targets of imperialist aggression. To this end, a constant stream of war porn consisting of movies, books and computer games is created in order to teach our young people to regard their brothers and sisters in Iraq, Afghanistan and elsewhere as ragheads, mere targets to be gunned down. 111 CPG BML without families, friends or a life that should hold any value to the working class youths who are sent to end them. Campaigns to demonize the targeted peoples abroad are in their turn used in turn to justify yet more racism against communities in Britain that may have familial or religious ties to the targeted countries, and the violent suppression of any protest they may make to this unjust state of affairs. It is no accident that the wars against the peoples of the Middle East in the last 15 years, motivated by imperialism's need to control the region's oil, and where the dominant religion happens to be Islam, have been accompanied in aggressor countries such as Britain, the USA and France by an enormous wave of carefully orchestrated Islamophobia. A recent example of how British workers can be used by the billionaires to serve imperialism's interests has been seen in the creation of a growing movement of British jihadis going off to fight with Islamic State, ISIS, and other mercenary death squads in Syria. Subjectively, these young men may imagine that they are carrying out a religious duty, and even believe they are opposing the system but in reality they are simply being sent as cannon fodder to carry on our ruling class's fight against a government that is standing up for its national independence against imperialist bullying. The ruling class brainwashes, trains and funds these fighters, facilitates their departure, and then reaps a double reward. First, by being able to deny any involvement in the war it is so ruthlessly waging abroad, and second, by being able to fan the flames of racism at home using its official outrage at Muslim terrorists to justify further repressive anti-worker legislation, dressed up as anti-terror measures aimed only at a minority, but in reality aimed at all working class people, and still greater and more arbitrary police and state suppression of the British Muslim population generally, all accompanied by vicious tirades from press and parliamentary pundits. 
112 Capitalism and Immigration Marx famously said that a nation that enslaves another forges its own chains asterisk and showed that our oppressors gain strength both from the vast increase in their plundered wealth from abroad and also from the accompanying division of workers at home. That is why communists support national liberation struggles and resistance movements worldwide. Anything that weakens British imperialism abroad is also helping us to destroy the capitalists' power at home, and is thus bringing the day of our own freedom from exploitation a little closer. Socialism will end racism when we have grown up in a capitalist world, it can seem that racial tensions are somehow natural and to be expected. But if we want proof that racism is neither inherent in human beings nor inevitable in human society, we have only to look at the experience of the socialist countries. In 1917, the communist leaders of the October Revolution in Russia declared all imperialist war and occupation, annexation and colonial seizure to be criminal. They declared all peoples of the world, no matter what their race, religion or color to be equal and outlawed all discrimination. By involving people from Asia, who had previously been designated as too backward to rule themselves, in the construction of socialism and the building of a new society and a new culture, the newly formed Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR, crushed imperialism's racist justifications for its ruthless exploitation of the world. The Soviet people proved that there is absolutely no justification for any kind of racism. The USSR replaced xenophobia, asterisk confidential communication on Bakunin by Karl Marx on behalf of the International Workingmen's Association, IMA, to Dr. Ludwig Kujelman and leaders of the German Social Democratic Workers' Party, the 28th of March, 1870. 113 CPGBML Bigotry and Fratricidal Warfare with Cooperation, Respect and Fraternal Harmony, and it showed the immense contribution that all people are able to make to the building of a higher culture and a truly civilized life when given the opportunity. Previously, the ruling classes of the various imperialist powers had been perfectly open in their racism calling the oppressed peoples childlike and saying that they were inherently incapable of running their own affairs. They prettified their colonial pillage of the world by dressing it up as a civilizing mission the famous white man's burden to bring democracy and modern values to the backward peoples of the world. But the example of what formerly subjugated peoples were able to achieve in the socialist USSR turned the prevailing supremacy myths on their heads and inspired millions of oppressed people all over the world to join the fight against imperialism. This brought to an end the era when open racism and naked colonialism could be tolerated. An unstoppable tide of national liberation movements was launched following the Soviet example. After the October Revolution, no people would any longer resign themselves to the inevitability of foreign domination. And all this in turn inspired movements against racism at home in all the imperialist heartlands. Today, no right-thinking person would admit the idea that race was a justifiable basis for discrimination. When Britain finally passed its first, very weak, anti-racism legislation in 1965, 
Its existence, though puny, was an admission of moral defeat by imperialism. Previously, the imperialists trumpeted their racist ideology proudly and openly, now they have to hide it behind politically correct weasel words about equality of opportunity and respect for all. Today, whether it be princes sporting swastikas, mayors denigrating Picanonies, or the deaths of half a million Iraqi children being ruthlessly dismissed by government ministers as collateral damage, the system's politicians and spokespeople are continually being 114 capitalism and immigration caught out in their double standards which further underlines the absolute loss of the moral high ground by capitalism in general. Organize the resistance when one adds systematic mistreatment and harassment of ethnic minorities by the state to wider economic inequalities, it is quite understandable how even a single incident can spark a drastic reaction, be it the police killings that set off the Brixton and Broadwater Farm uprisings in 1981 and 1985 or the murder of Mark Duggan in North London that ignited the youth uprisings of 2011. We see a similar pattern repeated across the imperialist world. Young people in mainly immigrant communities regularly rise up in France, while in 2013, disadvantaged youth in Sweden also took to the streets. The 2014 and 2015 uprisings in the USA were similarly sparked by an incendiary combination of institutional police racism and violence with abject poverty. While bourgeois politicians and journalists have been united in their denunciations of such uprisings, we communists refuse to equate the violence of the oppressed with the violence of the oppressor, who stands over us with a gun to our head, demanding that we proclaim ourselves non-violent and trust in his tender mercy. Our task is not to disarm workers but to combine their righteous and militant anger with a clear Marxist-Leninist understanding of the real enemy capitalist imperialism and all its representatives. What we need is not bourgeois pacifism but effective organization and intensified struggle. We do not reproach those who rise up for their violence. Rather, we reproach our own movement for still being too small and weak to offer the kind of practical leadership that is capable of channeling workers' anger 115 CPGBML into more constructive acts of destruction. Spontaneous outpourings of rage, however justified, leave those involved isolated and subject to reprisal. They will not abolish capitalism, which is the cause of our misery. We must learn to target our enemies precisely, to be systematic and broad in the sweep of our movement, and to ally ourselves and coordinate our action with the widest possible sections of the working class in order to tackle the crucial task of overthrowing the ruling class by any means necessary. Capitalist imperialism has outlived its usefulness. Its greatest crimes have economic roots the incredible waste of human potential and the millions of deaths caused by the systematic pauperization of vast swathes of the world's population. The imperialists are drowning the world in blood to perpetuate this system of economic slavery, more than 50 sovereign governments have been overthrown by the USA alone since 1945. For the last 200 years. 
working class strikes and revolutionary movements have been ruthlessly and undemocratically suppressed in the USA, Britain and elsewhere. Even in the rich heartlands of imperialism, there exists a large and growing class of impoverished and marginalized workers who, under capitalism, have no hope, no rights, no voice and no future. These, for example, were the youth that came onto the streets of Britain in August 2011 to confront and challenge police repression. That we can only have true equality between nations and between the various ethnic communities in our society after classes have been abolished does not mean that the question of racism has to wait until after the revolution, quite the opposite. As some of the most disadvantaged in British society, more black people, especially the youth, should urgently be encouraged to join the revolutionary ranks. After decades of marginalization and demonization, the poorest communities in Britain today are a powder keg of frustra 116 capitalism and immigration shun and rage, full of revolutionary potential. What is lacking is the organization and ideology that will turn the forest fires of our occasional uprisings into an unstoppable inferno that will ultimately burn the entire system of exploitation to the ground. Class-conscious workers of all backgrounds need to take hold of the weapon of Marxist-Leninist education, and to use this understanding to break down the walls of suspicion between our communities, uniting them in a common fight against our oppressors, and advancing the revolutionary struggle against imperialism and for socialism. As the old trade union adage goes, united we stand, divided we fall or as Karl Marx and Frederick Engels so profoundly expressed it in the Communist Manifesto, workers of the world, unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. You have a world to win. Jyoti Bra London